0: Game study study buddies, your one-stop shop for everything. You might need to know about the academic field of game studies or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron and with me as always is Michael. Hi. We're talking about C. Teen wins games agency as art. Does that have a colon in the title? Uh yes, it does. Or it's a
1: little confusing.
0: No. Uh Yeah, because it doesn't really have a colon in the title, right? Yeah. The reason I was asking is I've seen so I've seen some places where it has, uh, where people stylize the title, mm-hmm. you know, where they make the decision: is there a colon? Is there no colon? I see some people putting a comma. Ooh, games, comma agency is art. Oh, Where Where, yeah. where are my m dash folks at? That's right. You could do that too. Yeah. Where are my m dash? Hey, sound off in the comments if you are. M-dash. <laughs> this is the second book in what we are calling the Summer of Agency. Dun, dun, dun. The Summer of Agency. We're looking at uh, different books in, in and around game studies that deal with questions of agency. Where does agency come from? Where does it go? Uh, uh, Without it, we wouldn't but, have been married a long time ago. What is that? What? Is that some sort of rhyme?
1: Yeah. Huh,
0: yep. Some sort of Art Garfunkel or something.
1: Yep, yeah. Art Garfunkel uh, came uh, up with that. Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. Mm-hmm. Well, it was used uh, in the Graduate.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> they should rescore the Graduate with like the hottest hits of the 2010s. <laughs> Don't you think? Don't you yeah. think that would change the the vibe? That
1: should be the new thing: is taking like classic movies and just like putting new songs on the soundtrack. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. Hollywood, call us. Hey, you
0: know what I heard? What? They're remaking Roadhouse. I did hear that. Man. You ever hear a thing that gives you depression?
1: Semi-frequently, I would say.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway. (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. That's that's good stuff. That's good. That's good here at the beginning. Uh Uh-huh we are uh anyway so um this book the hottest book of books about agency from the year 2020 yeah I would say made a big splash when it came out and it came out and people said oh you should check this out you should do it and I said uh sure and I bought it and I just had some other stuff going on in 2020 you know mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. some additional in 2021 and 2022 and up in 2023 up till now. But we got to it by um, constructing uh, a reason to get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, last month we did Bettina Bodie's book, uh, video games, something, something, something. <laughs> What's it called? <laughs> I don't have it here.
1: Just <laughs> I like how that guess
0: works. Where it's just like <laughs> it probably had video games in the title. Yeah, it more than likely it, it was, had video games it was in just the called title. video
1: games and agency.
0: Oh, there we go. All right. Mm-hmm. I knew video games is in the title. Come on, cut me some slack. <laughs> <laughs> that that I mean, that would be the the play to just title your book "Video Games Something Whatever" <laughs> something else <laughs> on ambiguity and play. You know, that's fun. But uh, you know, this book is uh, we, we can just we can dive right into it. Maybe uh, after you give us some background on when, uh, but. Uh, the it is a straight up book about the philosophy of agency in and how it is expressed and or understood through and with games. Not video games, not sports, not board games, not some other type of game I can't keep come up with in this very moment. Mm-hmm. Uh reindeer games. Yeah, not those. No, not those. There we go. I got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, But all of those things, it is it is uh, in the remit of philosophy as a discipline. It's going wide, Mm -hmm. you know? Yep. Uh, And so but weirdly enough, I do think it's worth saying this up top and we'll talk about some of our other maybe disciplinary thoughts about this book um, in just a minute. But I, I would say that this is a book about games. It is not a book of game studies. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. o- other than a couple people so like Jesper Yule um shows up fairly frequently um uh and maybe Daniel Vella gets a couple uh, like affirmative citations for the most part game studies as a kind of coherent field shows up as a kind of enemy logic that has to be dismissed immediately. (laughs) Yeah. And so that we can like get to the, the work of philosophizing. And so the vast majority of the work that we have talked about on game study study buddies, like the podcast or the previous 59 episodes, the vast majority of the kind of stuff that you might've seen in most of those books of proper game studies as in part of the field of game studies just isn't going to show up here because Nguyen doesn't feel like, it is. I, I don't actually. I can't. I can't speak to the feelings here. It doesn't show up because this is a book of philosophy that is speaking to philosophers, and the vast majority of affirmative citations in the book are to people in the discipline and field of philosophy, mm-hmm. not to people in game studies. And so, actually, the, a, a very funny thing happens a couple times in two separate chapters where. Uh, it's basically the same list of game study scholars. So it's it's uh, uh 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 John Sharp, Mary Flanagan, Gonzalo Fresca, Ian Bogost, and Mia Consalvo. I think one time they get summoned up in like a mm-hmm. couple paragraphs to be immediately dismissed as like insufficient to the task of actually thinking about what games do. Uh, re agency Mm -hmm. uh and actually happens twice in the book which is very funny to me like that same cluster of people get um brought in but so that's just to say right everything we're going to talk about after this i think is going to have maybe two modes of leverage to them right in terms of talking about the book and kind of getting under it and thinking through it one is through the terms that nguyen gives us and the other one is hey michael you're gonna you're gonna love this you ready okay its exclusions, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the things that yeah. it uh, that the book has to exclude or decides to exclude, uh, so as to not be responsible to it, um, yep. uh, and to not need to feel like it needs to be responsible to it. And look, you can write an academic book all the any way you want to. Any field can do whatever they want, and certainly each field has its different expectations of how they might handle these things. You know, I work primarily at this point within the field of communication slash communication studies. Uh, communication studies has a real habit of what I would call the serial citation, where uh, you just make a claim and then you drop like 14 names at the end of the sentence, and mm-hmm. that's taken to be sufficient to the task. That's a common thing in communication studies. Mm-hmm. Not a thing that I'm really into in a general sense. You know, I, I often find that insufficient, um, but that's a disciplinary um, regularity and focus, right? And some of the things I think that the two of us keyed into to be critical of in this book in a specific sense are things that have to do more with the American academic field of philosophy than it has to do with any particular decision being made by the author here. Mm -hmm. Um, But also I think some of the things that we're both positive on in the book are that way too. So I do want to say that at the beginning just to set up the kind of like stakes of how we talk the thing um do you have anything to add to that michael or do you want to give us some biographical info to get us down the road
1: yeah i think everything you said is is basically accurate to my perspective as well so uh biographical info this time a little bit scant uh so ct nguyen uh got his phd from the uh from ucla uh and he is currently the associate professor of philosophy at the university of utah Uh, this book came out, as you already said, in 2020 from Oxford University Press, and it was his first book. And I I did a little bit of digging to see if this uh, grew, like, immediately out of whatever his dissertation was, Uh, but I couldn't figure out what his dissertation was. And the only reason I was looking into that is because you and I have talked— actually, in just the last episode, we went long on this, I think— uh, talking about, like, what makes a book kind of like the the dissertation book, right? The book that grows out of uh, your, your dissertation. Uh, what does that look like in various places, in various fields? And I was uh, thinking about how I don't really... Like, if this did come out of a dissertation... I find that very interesting because it means that how philosophy dissertations work is basically very different from the dissertations that I would have done, it sounds like that you would have done, and it seems like, you know, uh, uh, Bodhi did.
0: Yeah, I, the, I, as far as I know, this is not a dissertation book. Okay. Um, I do think the way that Nguyen, you know, I've read some interviews and um, maybe seen, seen him talking about it on Twitter or something like that, um, about how I don't believe that games was his focus for a very long time, and it was only kind of after... Um, uh, kind of figuring out where he wanted to be in philosophy. He did that, and I think was actually strongly discouraged in philosophy from studying games. If I am mm. uh, recounting a, a thing that I have heard correctly, so um, I I don't believe it is is that okay.
1: All right. Well, so that's and the uh you know his his uh page on the University of Utah's website is pretty scant because it's it's a philosophy department so it's just like here are the you know the six things that i'm interested in uh aesthetics trust
0: etc <laughs> yeah i i so if you look at his you know scholar.google.com page the the this book is very popular you know obviously but the other thing that uh when um publishes on and popularly has published on, is Echo Chambers. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and uh, and so uh, he's got a publication from 2018 that Google is indexing at 606 citations called Echo Chambers and Epistemic Bubbles. And having read the book, I'm not shocked by that, that that's an, an interest yeah. mm-hmm. of, of his. Um, because ultimately, this is a book about... What are the values of and ways of thinking through the way that agency is corralled by games? And how do we think that properly? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think that is that is that broadly sufficient enough, you think? Yes, I would say so. Yeah, I was looking. I, I pulled this up in order to see, like, can we could we see the dissertation? Oh, wait, wait. I, I think I think it is. Let's find out. You can edit around this if you want to. Yes. So uh, Nguyen's dissertation is called "An Ethics of Uncertainty: Moral Disagreement and Moral Humility."
1: Yeah, there we are. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so you can see, you can draw a line, I think, yeah. from <laughs> from yes. this. But it, but you were right. It does look very different from the kind of dissertation that other fields might do. It's uh, appears to be a uh, you know, it's about one hundred and eighty-two pages give or take, is what it looks like here. No, sub-200 pages. Um, And is written in the very clear style of this, um, just scrolling through it here, of this book here, with a, um, it looks like digging through really deeply some very specific arguments from specific people. But yeah, you're exactly right. It does not look like the Bodhi dissertation um, that, that, uh, you know, that we, dissertation book that we talked about last time or the kinds of documents we wrote, which are kind of, uh, field spanning arguments that demonstrate your competency w- with talking to and with your peers in the field. Um, this seems to be a much more kind of linear document mm-hmm. that, that proves the capability of understanding a very specific thing, which, yeah. you know, aligns with my expectations and understandings of philosophy. So, right there you go. Okay. That's how this book is. Yep. Uh,
1: yeah, and apart from the stuff that you already said, yeah, this is a book that uh, uh, I, I like some things about it quite a bit, and other things I just—it is not speaking to me. I think that is the way that uh, I can phrase that, is that, th- like, this book, I understand kind of, like, who its audience is, and the audience is, I think, other, like, philosophers, not really me. <laughs> Who is not a philosopher. I don't know what I am, but I'm not a philosopher.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, I think what's really interesting about it is, you know, it's one of the rare academic books that, when it came out, uh, made a splash outside of academia. It did. right? Yeah, I heard a lot about this book when it came out. Yeah, Ezra Klein read it and interviewed Nguyen, which is great. Like, hard to be mad about uh, the serious study of anything (laughs) going wide. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I think that's good. But I also think that speaks to... The values of the book, right, and particularly the rhetoric of the book, you know, Mm -hmm. that it is it is a book of American philosophy, which is a very specific kind of portion of the way that philosophy is done worldwide today. Uh, The really quick rule of thumb is that there's analytic philosophy and then there's continental philosophy. You mm-hmm. know, broad strokes, what Michael and I do in the philosophy that we talk about on the show and that we engage in the most is continental philosophy, generally yeah. meaning um, uh, 19th and 20th and 21st century French and German and Italian uh, theoretical thinking, right? Uh, in the U.S. that got processed under a capital T theory. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's the, the kind of work that happens there. Um, and so those are, you know, if uh, we've mentioned names like Foucault, Lazzarato, um Derrida, mm-hmm. you know, these kinds of people, Latour, those kinds of people are the philosophy that we have engaged with the most, both in our formal study and I think the things we like the most. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other portion is analytic philosophy that uh, emerges out of um, a, a very specific anglophone setting, is mostly associated with. England and the philosophical tradition coming out of the 17th, 18th century there that then ports over to the United States and creates its own, um, distinct version of that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, this is some real quick glosses. This is not a history of the academic fields of philosophy I'm giving you. But to understand that when people say that they engage in philosophy in academic work, that can mean very radically different things. Right. Um, I don't think Foucault shows up in this book at all, right? Like it's a different universe right. of of considering what the word philosophy means and what the trajectories you might follow to get to talking about philosophy are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say one is better than the other or one's more valuable than the other or whatever, but they do constitute different approaches to the question of philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and yeah, so Nguyen is in this other universe from stuff that we do. And I think that the, you know, I similarly have a lot of, um, uh, I guess, criticism of the book is, is the best way of putting it. But most of that criticism is stylistic um, and terminological Mm -hmm. and kind of conceptual, right? Mm -hmm. that, For me, the way that the book resolves lots of issues, uh, I would not try to tackle from first principles, right? Like, I would look at uh, historical conditions. I would look at historical frameworks. I would look at different epistemes, right, Mm -hmm. that have emerged in time. Basically, what I'm saying is I would take a Foucauldian genealogical approach, right? Like, games don't exist for me. Games are a (laughs) historical (laughs) phenomenon that emerge in time, that emerge in discourse, that emerge under the production of hegemony and power, you know, think back if you've listened to our episode on Stuart Hall, the yeah. way that Hall talks about how cultural studies apprehends its objects, you know, for who do things matter, and how do they matter, and how do they express that mattering, and what is the power that that mattering has in the world? How does it change things? How does it convince other people that it matters? How does it destroy other stuff, right? hmm you know, that's the approach that I would take, and I think that's the approach you would take, Michael, given that you're much more specific attachment to uh, historical inquiry yeah. in your in all of your scholarship and, and your thinking. That's mm-hmm. not what Nguyen's doing here. That's not how this version of philosophy engages with things. It does move from first principles quite often, and it will take a kind of mental construct and slap a label on it and then give you a bunch of examples of why that label is true. Um if you're hearing Bernard Suits here, <laughs> uh, you know, from a few episodes ago, you wouldn't be wrong to hear that because Bernard Suits is was in, is in that tradition. I think a lot of the cri- criticisms we have of that book, we would just also apply here so we really don't have to go over them again. Um, but also Su- Bernard Suits is uh, bone deep required for this yeah. book. Um, this book is built out of the grasshopper. Um, and I, I don't know. So, sorry, I'm monologuing a little bit. Uh, Michael, do you have anything you want to say about any of that kind of stylistic stuff or conceptual stuff? No, all, all in agreement.
1: Yeah. The, uh, important thing to know is that a lot of our ideas or, or criticisms here are going to be echoes of things that we said in the suits episode, uh, which we were also critical of, um, and for sort of similar reasons. And I will add to that, uh, that this is also this book i think also productively engages with suits there's like a point later on where i'll i'll talk about it when we get to that chapter where you, you, we didn't record that episode until after this book was out uh mm-hmm. but like Nguyen, like w- sort of zeros immediately in on uh Unexplicitly, right? Doesn't even articulate it in this way, but like takes one of the major criticisms I had of Suits. And because what I said about Suits is that the definition of games that he uh, comes up with seems totally workable to me. Uh, it just ca- sort of depends on what you're going to do with it. And also, there mm-hmm. are just a couple of things that clearly Suits himself doesn't consider. Um, that could be included in his definition, but are not right. He never like digs into some of this stuff. And there are a couple places here and one place in particular where I feel like Nguyen uh, actually does that work. And it's like, yes, okay, good, great. I'm glad someone else uh, is is like taking it in this direction as well.
0: Yeah, I think that Nguyen broadly is a good philosopher, right? Mm-hmm. Like under under the the paradigm of values, right? Yeah. <laughs> of what of what this philosophy does, which which I don't think I'll ever be fully on board with, just because of my, you know, pre existing values, right? To to use the the term of art for the book, um, although pre existing is not there, but I have I have uh, 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 flexible values that I'm inflexible on in some ways. Mm -hmm. um i i think when's a good philosopher uh and and plays out suits in a really great way you know something interesting that came out of that episode i don't think we've talked about on the show on on suits that we did on bernard suits is the grasshopper which you can check out if you want um something interesting that came out of that episode is uh, frank lance um uh game designer academic notable bernard suits lover uh you know made a little tweet thread Mm -hmm. that was like hey this episode is maybe insufficient to thinking through uh, suits, and um, you know, maybe gives people the wrong idea about suits. So here's what I think. By the way, uh, Frank Lance is going to have a book out th- that deals with some of this stuff, and uh, soon, I believe, actually, maybe this year or next year. So mm-hmm. um, be on the lookout for that. I'm actually really interested in checking it out. But you know, we had a little bit of a conversation, and 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 um, Lance is really into the lucery attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, of uh, that comes out of suits this idea that that games are as much about approach. Right. And, and, and thinking through kind of positionality toward values as it is anything else. And, you know, we can disagree about this, Frank Lance and I, the 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 cost of the disagreement is low <laughs> in, in a general sense. Right. But, you know, for, for him, that in that book that concept basically overwhelms any other word. It seems to me, you know, mm-hmm. you know if, if he disagrees with that, you know, um, uh, with this characterization, you can let me know. But that concept, that kernel overwhelms anything else. Really, the vast majority of the rest of the book pales in comparison to the power of the notion that the loose attitude, this kind of playful engagement, this giving oneself over to uh, the, butery, the beauty of the ludic, mm-hmm. that 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 can... Uh, explode everything else, and provides a platform for doing lots of other things. Right? It, it's it's a exportable kernel that does a million other things. Mm-hmm. And you know, my my disagreement with that is like that's a little piece of that book that is for me the opposite. Right? It it is crushed by uh-huh. <laughs> you know the 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 pressure of the rest of the analytic framework of that book. And actually, it's allowed the loosery attitude for me. From suits, if you if you're looking at it in its context, it is allowed to do very little mm-hmm. uh, due to the framework that's built around it. It's actually in a cage of argumentation. I I I say all of that to say you can do whatever. Nguyen does a similar thing with Suits, though, where uh, Suits' argument, you know, mm-hmm. this, like, kind of base claims that, that we're going to lay out in just a minute, that gets to export out, and we really don't have to think through the rest of that book too hard. <laughs> yeah. And so it does seem like, at least implicitly, Nguyen is in agreement with all of us, right? Which is, like, the grasshopper has some great ideas in it that are maybe constrained by the thing that they're uh built into you know mm-hmm. by it, it's a it's a cool jewel built into a ring that sucks you yeah. <laughs> know <laughs> and i'm you know i don't, maybe other people don't feel that way but i think that's how you and i felt about the book but i say all of that to say that that's also that feeling right which is almost entirely determined by rhetoric by by the way the words on the page come out is that this is a book of philosophy it is a book of american philosophy in a very particular tone And I find that tone really difficult to align with. Mm -hmm. And and I mean that seriously. The way the words are written and the kind of, well, here's an idea I have. Now, you might think that's wrong. Let me tell you why it's right. You might have thought this. You're also wrong. Let me tell you why I was right. Now, you might be thinking at this point, that can't be true, and I'm here to tell you it is. There's this kind of dialectic process that goes on here where the argument's laid out, and then you start future thinking all the different ways that um other people might be wrong that you can defend your position. You know, you yeah. you defend yourself um before being attacked from any possible interlocutor. Yeah. That's, that's a, the philosophical mode.
1: It's a yeah, that I was gonna say that's the philosophical mode. It was a thing that I did not really like about Suits' book, and it is one of the big drags about this book for me, which I recognize, like, that's disciplinary. Like, because... 100 Like, what makes it such a drag is that uh, Nguyen starts... Uh, we we'll get into the book. I promise we'll talk about it presents kind of his central idea. And I'm like, that's a cool central idea. And I think I agree with you. And then like the next three chapters are chapters dedicated to now you may disagree with me. So I'm going to explain all the ways in which you might disagree with me and then we can get back on track. And so for it's it's you know, it's the Simpsons bit of like, when are we going to get to the fireworks factory? <laughs> You started the book saying we were going to go to the fireworks factory, but now you're, like, explaining why all the people who don't want to go to the fireworks factory should want to go to the fireworks factory, and I just want to go to the fireworks factory.
0: Yeah, right, and so I think that it's, it's almost entirely disciplinary, number one. Right. But number two, it means that proof is derived from... Uh, negating arguments that haven't been made against you, uh-huh. as opposed to proof being derived from, say, historical examples right. or genealogical research or an analysis of discourse. You know, The vast majority of proof that comes here are kind of from first principle claims, right? Like, this is true and here's why I know it. And then working through specific moments of gameplay or thought experiments of people in the world. And I just do not find, I've never in my life Found a thought experiment to be compelling. Uh, it just they don't do work for me, and I think they're fascinating as like philosophical claims. And I've always been really interested about like the meta philosophy work that looks to thought experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and philosophizes the values of thought experiments. I, you know, that's that's something that's really great for me. Maybe this is uh, my interest in science fiction and speculation coming out, right? Mm-hmm. That's more interesting to me than the actual thought experiment. But uh, but that is the way that the, the book moves. And this is purely personal, too, right? The last thing I'll say before we get to the book, this is purely personal, but it's absolutely true. I spent about a decade of my life, and every now and again still dip into it, um, doing uh, the activity, the game of competitive debate. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't you know that competitive debate functions exactly like philosophy? Yeah, <laughs> um, you you set up uh, a you know a claim that needs to be defended by one team and it must be negated by the other team, and then you reach into your pocket and pull out. All kinds of bullshit, some of which is evidentiary in nature, some of which is procedural in nature, some of which is purely kind of philosophical in nature. You reach in your pocket, you pull all kinds of bullshit out in order to make those things happen. And then the next round, you're on the, the opposite side of a different claim or sometimes the same claim, depending on what kind of debate you do. And so the the maneuver itself to me is is so tied up with a game ironically enough right the idea that we're like switch side debate for me is just like it's a game activity mm-hmm. and it's hard for me to derive serious value from it because i just end up reading it like i would read uh you know a 1AC in debate where i'm like all right yep this is here and oh look we've hit Uh, You know, the block of preempts here Mm -hmm. (laughs) that that allows you to cross-apply those over to different flows later on. This is some real debate speak for the the debate listeners, right? But, so, you know, I end up running into this rhetorical problem in some ways where it's like, this discipline has been so fully eaten by this other game I played for so long that I can only see it through the form of the game. And I'm immediately... And it's a thing I have to fight, right? But I think we got to be honest about the way that that we read. I think that's a value. Hopefully, that's a value for people of Game Studies, study that we are open about the way that we read, that things don't come from nowhere, right? Mm -hmm. They come from our personal history as much as they come from world history and everything in between. I am immediately dismissive of some things here because it asks me to start playing the game. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm like, here's the one AC. He gives me the preempts for the next set of arguments. And in my head, I'm immediately writing arguments against Nguyen because I'm trained to do so by the debate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is also why I think that discipline is an important term that never shows up here. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think my own response demands that I militate against some of the ideas in this book. <laughs> um but I think it's fascinating anyway. I'm I'm going off um wild as hell. Michael, do you want to actually take us into this book so we can talk about it?
1: Yeah. So structurally, uh just to give you the lay of the land again, this is a very different kind of book than what we normally talk about. Although, you know, not weirdly enough, uh uh maybe the closest is suits in terms of just uh uh It's a lot of chapters, or comparatively a lot of chapters. It's ten chapters, and each one kind of has uh, a central topic. Uh, And the first, uh, well, the first chapter is basically giving you the skeleton or kind of the the bare bones uh, conceit that is going to determine everything else, right? Like, what is uh, Nguyen's core idea? What is he going to bring to this discussion about games? Or rather, actually, uh, the better way to put it, What does his experience with games allow him to bring to the discussion of agency? Um, And then uh, the next couple chapters are kind of elaborations on that, digging into some details and dismissing some potential counter arguments. Uh, And then kind of the back half of the book is about accepting uh, the premise that Uh, Nguyen has already put out and then being like, okay, so if I am right and if games work like this What are the downstream effects? And then what do we do with those downstream effects? And some of them are good and some of them are bad And so like here are the good ones. Here's how we might recognize or think about the good ones. Here are the bad ones Uh, Here's how we recognize those here are ways that we might guard against them. That's like big picture What happens in this book over the course of ten chapters? the first chapter then uh, where we get the the core idea is called agency as art, uh, and uh, I think how do I want to start this? Well, uh, because. We're talking about suits, although I don't think uh, he talk, He doesn't talk about suits until a couple pages in. Uh, but the first thing we're going to talk about is the idea of goals and motivations, uh, which is kind of the, the starting point here, right? Uh, Nguyen says that games are, and this is the specific quote from the first page, a motivational inversion of everyday life. So whereas uh, in everyday life, uh, uh, we might have a goal and we choose means that get us to that goal. I am uh, hungry, so I am going to make a sandwich. Uh, games are a motivational inversion of that uh, in the sense that uh, a game has a goal, and that goal is often not terribly important because what we appreciate about the act of playing a game is not so much achieving the goal. Like, obviously, if you're playing basketball, you're you're happy that you made a basket, uh, but, like, getting a ball through a basket is not in and of itself some sort of valuable or rewarding activity most of the time uh what we enjoy about games says Nguyen is precisely uh, the means rather than the goal the goal becomes an excuse to kind of experience the means of getting to the goal right mm-hmm. um because of this uh because then games uh have a variety of goals, obviously, uh, but the point of the games is to kind of foreground for us the experience of these means. Uh, then Nguyen says that games actually introduce us to alternate forms of agency, which is a, you know, the, the, later on he says that he's not going to provide a hard definition of agency because that's contrary to his purposes.
0: Um, so, ag- oh, and also that the, the de- that the debate is not settled. Yes. Uh, uh, which, which also it really asks the question of when will the when will the debates on agency be settled? Yeah, it right yeah. So <laughs> uh, uh,
1: basically, right? Uh, Nguyen says that when we play a game, uh, we have a description of a set of means that the game designer has given us, and uh, this is another direct quote: "We flex our own agency to fit." Again, from page one, into those strictures. So, uh, the game designer describes, like, both a goal and the means by which we achieve that goal, uh, and then in playing the game, we mold our own agency to the strictures that the game designer has set out for us. Thus, says Nguyen, games, and this is another quote, communicate forms of agency.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You you do stuff in games and they give you parameters with which to interact with uh, the world or digital world, maybe, although those distinctions don't seem to matter much to Nguyen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in doing that, it does something to you. I'm on board. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So that's like thing
1: number one. uh, And I think, does he get into striving play here in the first one?
2: Uh, yes, yeah, he does. So. Okay. Yeah.
1: So that's kind of... Uh, uh, so that's how he introduces everything, right? Like, that's, like, the big picture on games. Uh, and then the rest of this first chapter is about narrowing down uh, toward something a bit more tractable, I guess, for the purposes of the of the argument. Um, just to quote this again, or quote something else again. This is from page, I think, nine. Uh, in ordinary practical life, we pursue the means for the sake of the ends, but in striving play... And that's the other key term here. In striving play, we pursue the ends for the sake of the means. We take up a goal for the sake of the activity of struggling for it. Uh, So striving play then is Nguyen's term for uh, the specific type of gameplay that he is looking at because he acknowledges that there are other types of gameplay, right? There's a, a section here on what Nguyen calls stupid games. Uh, mm-hmm. that are not striving play, uh, because a stupid game is, uh, the two examples that, uh, he gives first, cause this come it recurs a little bit in other chapters, but the f- first two examples he focuses on are Twister, um, the party game, uh, from Milton Bradley, I think maybe Parker brothers, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but then the children's game of telephone, uh, yeah. So Twister where you have you know the the mat on the floor with the colored dots and you have to like put uh you know hands and feet on the various colors and you've got a bunch of people on the mat and everyone's like flopping around trying to hold everything without falling over. Uh, telephone, when you got a line of people, you start, like, whisper a phrase into someone's ear, they turn and they whisper it into the next person's ear, and so on and so forth, and then at the end, uh, you've got a phrase that is something like what was initially said, but has had a lot of, uh, distortions and misapprehensions introduced along the way.
0: Uh, Yeah, it's fun.
1: Yes, right. These are games that are not striving games uh, because ultimately, like, the goal is to fail or, like, to... uh, there is not an output at the end that is like, okay, there was a thing that we wanted to accomplish and we did it, right? The point of Twister is that eventually everyone falls down. Like, one person is going to be left standing. Uh, yeah. But that's, it's it's like a, the inevitability of the thing. Similar to Telephone, like... When you play telephone, if you have the exact same uh, message at the end that you whispered at the beginning, that's actually not very fun. (laughs) That's not what you wanted to happen. (laughs) Right, Right. Like the fun is like the generative process of seeing what weird thing that you didn't expect pops out of the other end. So striving play for Nguyen is this way of demarcating certain types of play that is specifically goal oriented. Again, think of basketball uh uh of getting the the ball through the basket getting the getting that to happen the most times uh the other thing that comes up is uh like rock climbing uh Nguyen apparently is a rock climber and so talks about yep. this uh quite a bit uh you know the 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 goal there is to do the climb uh you there may be many ways that you do it but like you have the the thing that you want to accomplish and the point of rock climbing is Figuring out how you do the climb in the act of doing it
0: and sort of the experience of your body and so on and so forth. So striving yeah. play. Uh and and the goal is specifically to disposable. Yes. Right. I, I just want to like really hammer on that. That the idea that it's not just you have a goal and you need to accomplish it and the methods don't matter, right? And so he uses the example of like the goal of basketball is to get the ball in the hoop. No one is gonna go at midnight the night before and start just putting the ball in the hoop, you know, get a ladder, put the ball in the hoop over and over and over again right right to to win the game, right there's mm-hmm. there's a broad structure that happens, but also there's a kind of arbitrariness to the goal that generates the striving itself mm-hmm.
1: right. uh uh the the goal itself uh kind of disappears in the act of achieving it, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah uh, it's
0: less important than the achieving. Yes. The striving. Mm-hmm. The word striving here, is it really, I just wonder, is that, I wonder if that's the best word for this, but. Um. Yeah, I
1: mean, so page 12, consider the category of aesthetic striving play, that is gameplay engaged in, uh, for the sake of the aesthetic quality of the struggle, right? So aesthetic there, mm-hmm. uh, he talks about aesthetic actually in a later chapter where he gets into yeah. that, but. Uh, the idea here is just like the feeling of playing the game of basketball and trying to make that basket and, you know, hopefully making it occasionally, uh, that is what you are pursuing in the game of basketball. Uh, now that doesn't mean that's the only thing that you do. And he talks that there are, you know, definitely people who are, what does he call them? Achievement players, right? The person who does in fact like want to make the most baskets in the game or whatever, uh, uh, professional players athletes often fall into this category of achievement players
0: yeah, it's where the outcome is the thing that matters and you know what David Serling calls uh strictly better play right mm-hmm. um even if something totally absolutely sucks if your goal is to win you should do it every time <laughs> um you know and I'm I'm not a fan of the Serlin way of thinking this stuff but it, it is almost um Perfectly crystalline in its philosophical, <laughs> you know, uh, construction, right? It, it just—it's an iron grid of of well, just do the thing, yeah. Um, and uh, but and, and yeah, right. And so this doesn't come up in the book, at least as far as I could tell. But another way of phrasing this of aesthetically striving play is for the love of the game. Mm-hmm. You do the thing because you play basketball because the game is beautiful in and of itself, mm-hmm. right? The the experience of the thing of putting the goals of overcoming of the maneuvers itself or themselves, all the different ways that you're engaging with the thing is inherently something that is worthwhile to you. Right. Mm-hmm. Notice that we didn't use the word fun because the word fun also doesn't show up here. I think in very much in a, uh, in a useful way. Right. That mm-hmm. fun, fun gets derived out here eventually, but it's, it's not core to the experience. Right. But, But for the love of the game versus for the love of winning, right? Achievement play is for the love of winning, of Mm -hmm. completing the goal no matter what the cost. Striving play is having a good old time doing the thing, Mm -hmm. even if you'll never be Michael Jordan. Right. Uh, And so uh, uh, to
1: return to the little quote that I had read about, you know, aesthetic striving play, play engaged in for the sake of the aesthetic quality of the struggle uh just one of the ways that i want to flag that like you know this this book does not feel quite directed toward me as a person who sits in game studies uh there's throughout this whole thing a uh, discussion of striving play of struggle of uh, this conception of games and like, you will know, we'll, like knowingly narrow, right? This is not mm. like. It, yeah. In some ways, this gate or this book is trying to like talk about all games, but uh, Nguyen is very clear that he is focusing on sort of like a very sliver, specific sliver of games and what they do. Uh, yeah, and all of them are orbiting around the ones that are of interest to him are about you know these questions of of struggle and striving. Uh, about, like, you know, basically uh, smashing your will into the arbitrary constraints of a game and how it is played, Uh, and sometimes, you know, against other players who are also getting caught up on those same uh, constraints willingly. All of this is talked about, and uh, someone who is not mentioned once in this book, not even to dismiss him, is Roger Calois and his idea of Aegon, which... Uh, you know, I'm not saying every single game studies text has to go back to Calwa. In fact, uh, you and I have co-written a piece <laughs> right. that is like, "Hey, what if we didn't talk about Calwa
0: so much?" Uh, that's, right. that's
1: at least half of that what that piece is talking about. So, right? so
0: this is a uh, this is a piece of criticism coming from a noted hater. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right? Like a like a, like a t- tactical and true absolute hater of Calwa. And so it pains you. <laughs> to say this and it's just like I mean
1: it's just it's it was such a clear signal early on of um, kind of where this book was aimed and kind of what is the archive that it's working with because I think if you are going to jump into game studies in 2020 and talk about struggle and striving in a game, I think you need to talk at least a little bit about Calwa and how he conceptualizes Aegon back in man games and play, right? Like, I think that is fundamental to game studies, the discipline as it currently exists. And this is one of the things that, uh, you know, signals that this is a book that is aiming, I think, more toward uh, philosophers than to game studies proper.
0: Yeah, it's just not. I, I feel very confident saying it is not aimed at game study scholars, Right. Um, and the citational apparatus makes that very clear. Mm-hmm. Um, it 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 engages in game studies, and I know that um, that uh, Nguyen is uh, goes to because I've seen you know previous. Um, uh, conference schedules, the philosophy of games, I think is what it's called, a conference that happens in, in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, maybe at Malta is where it, it's that same kind of group of people. Right. So, um, and we see some of those people, like I said, uh, uh, Daniel Vela shows up in this book, uh, maybe Stefano Gualini shows up. I'm not sure, but Oli Leno gets, uh, shows up in order to be wrong in the book. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, or I think, I think uh, Oli Leno might be right in the claims that get made here. But so yeah, it, it is a book where game studies proper, the discipline of game studies or the field or whatever you want to call it. Right. It shows up to be negated and where it shows up affirmatively. It's from the people who are doing philosophy within games, specifically, a very particular version of philosophy in games, mm-hmm. um, and that's totally fine, right? Like whatever, it, it is what it is. But it does mean that when we start, when we do the work of this show, right, or when we do the work of engaging with this book within the discipline of game studies or within the field of game studies, it does kind of bend the work a little bit because we have to figure out how to comport those two things together to make them to make them talk to make them communicate with one another. And I think it's hard to make the claims of this book sometimes talk to the rest of game studies. Mm-hmm. Um, because it operates from such first principles about what must be factually true, and and you're exactly right when you say that this book is is about games, but it's actually about a fairly narrow band of games, and uh, Nguyen is, is very open at all kinds of moments in this book of saying um, not all games are like this, or not all players are like this, and I'm just not talking about those and i think if you start tracking that through the book of the places where he's saying that you end up with a fairly delimited set mm-hmm. um you know the set gets smaller and smaller as the book goes on um but it, you know it, it, there there are i don't know we'll talk about it right it's the Ollie Leno part that shows up later of of what is complete uh play right like what what happens if you're not playing the same game is speed running super mario brothers uh playing super mario brothers mhm that, that's the question that shows up later, and Nguyen's answer to that changes what this book is in terms of how it engages with game studies, but mm-hmm. point being, uh, yeah, striving play is, is the major kind of key term that comes up here, and the rest of the book is determining how does striving play engage with questions of agency? And then, how does this kind of double idea of striving play with its attending philosophy of agency? How does that intersect with the world, mm-hmm. basically, and with all kinds of different things? Um, are there other things here in the the first uh, in the first chapter?
1: I think. Well, the other thing to flag is that the first chapter mm-hmm. concludes with uh, another thing that's going to show up throughout the book, which is this claim. Um, this is from pages nineteen to twenty. Uh, actually, I think this is a second repetition. Maybe this was something that was said earlier because that's what I wrote in my notes: is repetition of the claim. Uh, yeah. But the this idea that games, what is appealing about games or certain games for Nguyen, uh, is that they are. And this is a quote: a refuge uh, from a like difficult and inhospitable life. Like the the <laughs> the repeated kind of claim is that. Uh, Being alive is difficult and confusing. We've got all sorts of demands on us and what we need to do and what we're supposed to think about the world. Uh, uh, All these kind of competing claims by other people around us as to like the nature of the world and what we should be doing, so on and so forth, right? And so one of the appeals for games uh, in this book is that it simplifies and this is the language that Nguyen uses at various points that they simplify things and, and I, I flag that because it's going to be critical for how this book concludes. Mm -hmm. um games simplify the goals that we are trying to achieve or like they are a way of like artificially like blocking out the rest of the world to focus on this uh highly artificial and arbitrary uh and as you said cameron like sort of pointless goal in order to enjoy the means of achieving this pointless goal
0: um yeah they're the batting cages of real life
1: yes Right.
0: You know, you can be out there doing anything with a baseball bat, a ball you want to be doing in the universe, right? You can be out there, but the batting cages, they just they draw the whole world down, mm-hmm. right? It's just you and that pitching machine and the love of <laughs> whacking on that ball, right? Like that's the whole but you know, like if, if we're thinking of a visual metaphor here, right? This is maybe also my bristling against academic philosophy as I, I have a fairly uh, example-based in visual imaginary, right? Like, I just have to think about this in terms of of, of analog. But it's that kind of thing. It's, it's they, the value of games, Uh, what we valorize about games, what we appreciate about them, what they do for us, is that they uh, take the world, as you just said, and they narrow it to a very thin band of possible actions. And then we uh, revel in that. Mm-hmm.
1: And again, like, this is a point where I think like okay, so where's McKinsey work on Game Space? Because this is mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. precisely the same argument that she makes uh, in Gamer Theory, uh, but is something that I think would be brought like it would be productive to bring these ideas into conversation because one of the things work is saying, uh go check out our episode on that, or or, you know, better yet, read her book, uh, Mm -hmm. is that yeah, this is what games do, and what they do is they provide like a simplified, phantasmatic version of like capitalism that ends up justifying the like contradictory and inhumane version of capitalism that exists outside of them. Right. (laughs) So you know, just One of those points, it's like, okay, so, like, I can think of other things in game studies that sound a lot like this, but also put pressure on the claim in ways that I think. These are, ultimately, right, because the next chapter is, number two, the possibility of striving play. And this is the chapter where it's like, now, you might not think that striving play exists, so here we are going to rehearse various counter-arguments and then uh, uh, work our way out of them. Uh, Yeah. In a way, like, I want that to happen, right? I want the pressure to be put on Nguyen's argument, but that pressure doesn't come from the places that I want it to.
0: Yeah, because I immediately think about, well, who gets to play and under what conditions? And who gets to have the experience of the, narrow, of the world actually narrowing within the game experience, mm-hmm. right? Um, and wh- however you feel about that right if you think that's possible or you don't think that's possible and I can think of plausible game studies analysis on both sides of what I just said right you know there's good analysis the it's worth digging through the claim right you know there's the um, oh gosh uh, who is it Uh, the (laughs) do you know what I'm talking about when T-Pain went wild on Call of Duty (laughs) I vaguely remember this you know what I'm talking about? It went around like everywhere because it was really interesting. It's like maybe last year, I don't know, It's in, in the last couple of years. But basically, T Pain, there's a video, uh, and because T Pain was a streamer for a while, it maybe still is. I don't actually know what <laughs> T Pain's up to. Uh, I need to, I need to get on the phone with T Pain. Yeah. You know, it's been a minute. I haven't really uh, figured. But so T Pain uh, is in a Call of Duty Duty lobby, and uh, someone calls him a racial slur. Mm-hmm. They get into the game. And, and T-Pain goes hog wild, right? He's just annihilating these dudes, like <laughs> obliterating these people in Call of Duty, right? And th- that got read a lot of ways. One is just like it's pure fun entertainment. Like it's it's good to watch uh, a racist eat shit, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's fun in, in an inherent way. But the other thing was like that went around is like uh, uh, as a... Uh, validating moment, right? Like uh, that the game provided this opportunity for directly speaking back in a way that was mediated by the game. Right. right? You know, I I would be shocked if people have not written about this in that capacity, uh, but people talked about it on Twitter and I just, you know, haven't, haven't seen the articles if those are out yet. Maybe it's too soon or too new. I don't know. Academic publishing slow. (laughs) But that's the kind of thing that that's what I think about when I think about the way that games get used as a way of narrowing the real world that we live in, in order to think about the uses of agency within that and to give us other modes of experience being uh delimited agency, things like that. Right. Like to me, while reading this book, I was thinking. And obviously I believe that the Chi pain example happened after the book. So I'm not like, why is Chi pain not in in games agency? That's not what I'm saying. Please don't mistake me. But what I'm saying is that, um, that to me is a very, uh, relevant and, and important kind of example for thinking, thinking through these kinds of things, not just what does it mean to solve puzzles in games, right? Or what does it mean to like use empirical reasoning or whatever, um, I've actually read read a whole book about this, right? Like, (laughs) you can go read The World is Born from Zero if you want to read about the uses of science fiction games and the way that games deploy modes of speculation inside of them. How do they ask you to think the world uh, and then interact with it, and uh, then what are the uh, repercussions from that? I wrote that book. You can go read that. It's called The World is Born from Zero. You can get it for $22. Mm -hmm. Please buy it. Uh, That's my that's my uh, appeal. But but so that's kind of what I was hankering for this whole time, right, is the not just the proof that it is possible for games to mediate these other parts of life or to or to narrow them into certain forms of agency that can be taken on or thrown off that offer different pathways, That's not something that I needed proved because I believe that to be true because I believe that games do things. Yeah. Right? Like, we can learn from games. If it's possible to learn from a game, if it's possible to play a game and learn anything, whether it's the discipline of how to play the game better or something about the world or anything in between, if that can be demonstrated, then therefore, it must be true that games do stuff to us. Yeah. And what Nguyen gives us is a very thorough analysis of that from philosophical first principles essentially and also engaged with citations of other people around agency and and kind of other delimited forms of experience but this chapter I think I made one note on it and it's because I don't need this proven to me yeah. this is so brutally apparent to me that I don't need it proved also though I'm not an academic philosopher right like that there's a burden of proof within Nguyen's discipline so I don't begrudging you in this chapter, but it didn't do a lot for me. Right. No, this is exactly <laughs> exactly an agreement where it's like, I don't need
1: striving play defended. Like, th- it was described and I'm like, yep, I believe that that is how games work. Absolutely 100%, but uh, you know, that's not how how the discipline is structured for Nguyen. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing that I think is uh, worth pointing out from this chapter, because it leads directly into the next chapter, Layers of Agency, Uh, is the way that um, the language of immersion and submersion uh, start cropping up as ways to talk about what it is that happens with our agency when we play games. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, if you have listened to this show, (laughs) uh, you know that we are both kind of uh, uh, immersion critics. Uh, and this book is a really interesting example of, uh, I think why, I mean, like, I don't know about you, Cameron, but like one of the reasons why I am an immersion critic is because I think this language is just, I, I think it, sometimes I am, I think criticized on this point for being like obtuse that I am sort of like willfully mm-hmm. misunderstanding uh, the way that mm-hmm. people intend to use this language, uh, because Foolish Michael. Rapful, like, I'm just, I'm such a fool, uh, when I when people talk about being immersed in a game, they don't mean yep. like literally immersed and taken over and blah 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 blah. Uh, yep. I maybe maybe I yes maybe <laughs> I am just a fool. I'm a naive. I'm naive. Whatever. However, we're well, also
0: not alone, right? I mean, like uh, our criticism, as we talked about in the episode, in uh, Christopher Patterson's Open World Empire, Christopher Patterson makes a very similar claim to the one that we make, right? Mm-hmm. Like. We are not alone in our criticisms of immersion.
1: Right. Well, and like one of the reasons I criticize that specific language, because like I I believe that when people talk about immersion, they are trying to describe something that actually happens to them when they are playing a game. Yeah. I believe that. I do not think immersion is the right language because I think immersion carries along with it uh, a lot of like the, in some ways, uh, the the metaphor of immersion or submersion uh, carries with it an implicit uh, backdrop of like what it means to play a game that I just don't think is accurate, right? This idea of disappearing into, of being contained by the thing that you're working with, I don't think that's how the world works. I don't think that it actually like encapsulates you in that way. Um, and this is one of the things that... Uh, uh, I, like, I, I think this causes actually problems for Nguyen uh, because mm-hmm. he has to, like, come up with an entire, like, new way of talking about it. Not, like, necessarily a fully new way, right? But what I mean is, like, because of this immersion language, he has to develop a way of talking about agency that uh, can, like, scan within the paradigm, like, the metaphoric paradigm of immersion, And weirdly enough, like, because he talks about, like, we're immersing our agency in this, that, or the other. But then weirdly enough, it ends up, like, being the opposite of immersion. Because he starts talking about layers and how there's temporary layers that we're immersing ourselves into on top of the thing. So, I'm sorry. I'm talking over you,
0: Cameron. (laughs) No, 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 no. I I just, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the the claim as it's being made here, right, is uh, pretty clean, I think inarguable, right? Like, where this cashes out, I think, is the only place where I would disagree with it, but Nguyen says, look, uh, games have to... Uh, give you alternate modes of agency mm-hmm. because we already live in a world of deeply fragmented agency. Mm-hmm. Every time we engage with a kind of different framework of the world, right? You go to your job, you go uh, to the basketball court after work, you go to school, uh, you go to um, you know the farmers' market, uh, you go to the DMV, Um, you go to field day in the third grade, right? Like any of these given things, you go to the ball pit. All these different things have different structures of life to them. And they offer you kind of different uh, potential forms of agency within them. There's only so many things you could do Mm -hmm. at the DM in line at the DMV, right? There's only so many possible behaviors given to you. Now that is within kind of uh, acceptable societal discourse, I'll talk about that in just a second or not discourse, but, but action Mm -hmm. and discourse, I guess. But, uh, because of that, uh, you know, so he lays out this theory of agency of like the situations we are in determine possible sets of agency. And so then therefore games just offer us more of that and they offer them in even more delimited circumstances, you know, ultimately at the DMV, you could take your clothes off, right? Mm -hmm. I don't suggest it, but you could do that. (laughs) That is possible. Um, the, in Call of Duty, you can't, mm-hmm. um, it is not afforded by the thing. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. I think that, it, so, okay, I'm like on board, right? All right. The, the, you know, this is a way of talking experience. Um, and this is something that, uh, Vela and Gualini do too, as well in their, I'm blanking on the title of the book right now, but they have a co-written book on kind of existentialism in games and, and games as a kind of existential agential project. This is the same claim they make over there, right? That there's actually no real difference in experience between game and quote unquote real life. It's just the kind of different frameworks that we approach them through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about this in my book. I'm a little more critical of it than they are. Um, but, you know, this is a claim that is made in the kind of philosophical circles of games. hmm um, and, and also, this is kind of a claim made by James Paul G as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, although he is right to point out that we need a theory of literacy <laughs> between <laughs> here and there to understand what, what how, how do you read the the values of agency that are given to you? Mm-hmm. Big question mark. I don't know. Nguyen uh, 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 isn't interested in that. But you're right. The issue with that is that by taking on a theory of immersion as well, you, uh, Nguyen now has to answer two simultaneous questions. That on one hand, we are absorbed by a system entirely um, and we give ourselves over to it. And that's actually one of the really cool values of striving play is that we voluntarily do that. But on the other hand, we then have to... Uh, split up all the other possible ways of engaging with the world and call them different forms of agency. So it is both a holism and this kind of partitioning of experience that needs to be taken as a whole and, and then as a multi-split-up system uh, that can be analyzed uh, point to point. You know, mm-hmm. each of these... little If if uh, gameplay is a hand, then you need a theory for every finger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in and, and immersion is the hand and agency are all the fingers, right? You need right. a part in a whole kind of uh, analytical framework. Here's the deal. You don't need to do that, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think you need a the theory of immersion to make any of this go. And I think you're right that... Um, you can just, you can say, look, we have a, here, here's an alternate way of of approaching this whole thing. Some people have a phenomenon they call immersion. Mm -hmm. Uh, it is all encompassing and it brings them into the game and they like to be absorbed in the thing in in and of itself. That is them giving themselves over to a particular pattern of agency that the game system offers them. Um, I can't, I can't account for, this is me talking, right? right I can't account for why that's the case. But that's simply what occurs, right? And people report that. Also, you could have forms of agency that don't ask you to give themselves over to them. And ultimately, those two things work the same way. Like, this is all me talking, but and I've just re-explained what Nguyen is saying, right? Like, there's nothing I just said that doesn't work in the system that that he has. One is much more complicated, you know, this idea that that immersion and agency... Uh, co-involve one another that's really complicated to figure out and to do and I guess Nguyen does it but ultimately I, I'm with you Michael it's unnecessary mm-hmm. and and here's the reason I don't experience this immersion even the soft version of it here in this book I don't experience I have no idea what the fuck I'm ever playing for the love of the game right <laughs> just to be totally honest with you the kind of uh the the gameplay experience that Nguyen constantly is evoking here of becoming fully absorbed in the thing and using it as a balm for reality and how the existential angst you know as a word that's not used in here but you know this kind of heideggerian style angst Uh that that drives us anxiety heideggerian anxiety that drives us it's a very existential book Mm -hmm. uh in, in a way um this stuff drives us and games allow us both to Uh, knock out a lot of that to not think about it and to dive deeply into it in order to not consider these other things. I just don't experience that. We've talked about it a million times on the show, but the way that this is described is so wholly foreign to me Mm -hmm. um, that I can't even understand the analysis being given, right? Like, I've spent 2,000 hours playing Assassin's Creed games (laughs) over the past two years, right? Mm -hmm. And there's never a moment where I've been like, homing along with the agential pathway of going and collecting all the animus fragments and black flag. You know what I mean? I'm always sitting there thinking like, alright, I'm doing this task in front of me, I don't really care for this task. I wonder what this it would be like to be doing some other thing right now. Oh, that's interesting that they're framing the city in that way. Isn't that interesting that they have to manage the ship here? Oh, cool. There's not a loading area between the navigable terrain and the navigable terrain here. I wonder what's up with that. I wonder why they did that. I should make a note for when I interview this person. Right? Like, there's never a moment. You know, and maybe this is me having been a game reviewer for a decade uh, and a critic for a decade. Maybe this is me being an academic of a very particular thing. Maybe this is something inborn in me that I cannot control, a kind of a priori, you know, uh, can't play games right uh, capability. Mm-hmm. But I also think about Christopher Patterson in Open World Empire talking about that, right, that thinking th- to to accept the immersion claim. Um, alongside Murray's kind of dismissal of postmodernism, which is they are tied together yeah. in uh, Janet Murray's book, and this is where Christopher Patterson's argument comes from. That uh, if you do that, you are now cutting off a lot of methods from a lot of different fields. And for Patterson, you know this uh, has to do with issues of race and identity. This has to do with issues of queerness, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that those are the the two real levers that that patterson's pulling there right to accept the immersion claim is to necessarily bracket out some other things that might be really helpful for thinking games Mm -hmm. and so it's really hard to read this and read this kind of very uncritical for a book that is so um, in-depth and really smart and engaged right around these kind of conceptual issues to really uncritically accept the immersion idea right you know Mm -hmm. what some people might call the immersion fallacy right yeah uh to uncritically accept that and just drive down the road with it you know uh hanging out the back of the truck i just don't that's insufficient for me i don't think it does the work Mm -hmm. um and it or it doesn't do the work that not in an abstract sense but doesn't do the work that helps me make this book work for me right To, Mm -hmm. to use it as a tool for some other thing inevitably if I engage with this book, I need to go in and I need to take a ratchet and rip out this piece of it in order to then think agency in my uh, you know ideological position better mm-hmm. um, or or more sufficient for my task for it. So uh, I don't know'm I'm, I'm going off yet again, but it, it is a thing that I did feel very strongly here where it was like I just of all the ways of talking experience of talking play, of talking engagement with an object, of talking the way human beings, think their media and engage their media, why this uncritical acceptance of the notion of immersion? Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, it might be better to like restart, right? Yeah. Like, can we, is there an no, agency is actually a better way of conceiving this problem. Right. Uh, than immersion itself is.
1: Right. And, and that's sort of like where I come in, where I think I've talked about immersion, where um, I, I have said that I think I have experienced, I think I have experienced immersion and for me, it is never a pleasant experience, right? Like I right. like there,
0: are, you're in the machine zone,
1: <laughs> right? Like I, <laughs> I am aware when I am immersed and I hate it. Like I do not like it because it is usually a sign that I'm not having a good time because what I want to be doing is actually what you just described. Like I want to be sort of taking my time and sort of like processing like, Oh, how did they render this? So oh, this is a really interesting, like little like line of sight that they set up here in the game world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, and when I feel like I am just, like, doing the thing, like, that's not pleasant to me. That makes me feel like my attention has been narrowed, forcibly narrowed, in a way that is, like, bad. It, it like, stifles me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so to get around to it uh, also uh, because of the way that this works out in this book, um, it is— Because of that, because of what happens to me, I have, I guess, Mm -hmm. a particular way of like conceptualizing agency as it relates at least to myself. Uh, And so one of the things that Nguyen says is that there is a um, there's kind of like we we all have like this uh, uh, field or like force of agency. Right. That is uh, committed to our long term goals. And then when we play a game, we get like an agential layer Uh, that, like, forms on top of our baseline, everyday, ordinary life uh, agency, where it's like, okay, you know, uh, in uh, uh, the most broad sense, right, I am a person who wants to climb Mount Everest, and that is, uh, like, one of the driving goals of my life, and everything that I'm doing is committed to becoming the best mountain climber, but also I really like playing chess, and so for, like, the time that I'm playing chess, I get a little agential layer where, like, my goal shifts from wanting to, You know climb Mount Everest or like design a fast sports car or something like that anything anything else that I might want to do and I get like a temporary layer of agency that I inhabit and it's like okay at this point I am just like the chess player and I want to beat my opponent or like I'm playing Call of Duty and I want to beat these other guys and that's like a temporary agency that like evaporates when I'm done with the game Mm -hmm. and the, the quibble that I have here, right, and the quibble that I have about sort of, like, this language uh, of immersion and then the way that this, like, layered agency gets brought about to solve it is that I think, like, I don't disagree that that's how you can live your life, right? Like, <laughs> obviously, mm-hmm. you have, like, long-term goals and short-term goals and, like, the thing that you're doing for the day and so on and so forth. I don't think you're exercising different types of agency in those instances. I'm like a monist in this way where it's like (laughs) I have it's like it's all the same agency. Like it's all my agency Mm -hmm. and it is like my choice of how long I sustain my interest in any of these goals. Uh, yeah. right. Like, it, it's all the same thing. It's just like, I have like part of my agency is my ability to, uh, just make not like have short term goals and long term goals, basically. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, there's also like some, uh, uh, thinking that I think slips in here where, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Nguyen gets into it, uh, later, like, uh, talking about like, you know, authentic self and like your true mm-hmm. goals versus your temporary goals. Yeah. And I also like, I have yeah, different,
0: I, different valences of values. Right. As and, well.
1: and I guess, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, poisoned utterly by post-structuralism. Um, right. but like, you know, my long-term goals are also potentially, uh, short-term goals or like, you know, none of my goals are actually like, longer than any of the others are like more fundamental to me there's just the ones that I have chosen to like exert the most pressure on interior to myself versus the ones yeah. that I'm just like taking on because I want to play Call of Duty or something so
0: well so are we actually in chapter three at this point of layers of agency
1: well I think actually probably we've gotten into uh, chapter four implicitly with games and autonomy
0: well do you want to actually lay out very quickly the layers of agency claim uh didn't I just do that yeah, kind of. But do you want to go blow by blow on it? Uh, okay, let's see what I have in my the, notes. Th- like the if thens, you know what I mean. So it might be useful here to like lay out the the way that the layers of agency argument is made, and it's it's kind of hard to do because it's across the whole chapter, and it's developed across the whole chapter. The chapter itself is the argument, so it's a little it's a little wiggly in those terms. Um, but but. Uh, I I do think the kind of mechanistic claim that Nguyen makes is maybe helpful to just read here. So this is on page 58 of the book. Okay. Talking about layers of agency. How are these layers of agency, or how are these layers of agency, that's my insert, arranged and separated? One simple account is that the layering is chronological. Our agential layers are separated strictly in time. Before the game, we occupy our full agency. During the game, we submerge ourselves in the gaming agency and forget about our full agency. When the game ends, we return to our full agency. The agential layers would exist, by this sort of account, merely from the mind's capacity to temporarily alter itself. But I don't think that can be the complete story. At least to some degree, we must have the psychological capacity to maintain these layers simultaneously, to run the outer layer in the background as it were. This is because, as we've seen, we are usually capable of canceling the inner layer when necessary. For this to occur, we must retain some contact with our full agency, even as we are mostly submerged in the inner agency. And so he really ends up playing out these, like, qualms he has with that chronological claim you know Mm -hmm. this i I wouldn't even call it chronological i would call it kind of uh, hierarchical right like Mm -hmm. one is a subset of the other of of your full agency is all the possible agential action you have in the world the ability to go to the dmv and strip your clothes off and scream Mm -hmm. um and then you bracket that off for whatever given social situation you are in so in the dmv we have certain social behaviors that we have to comport ourselves within and then within a game you know so if you're playing monopoly at the dmv you have an even more delimited set and if you're playing your first term in monopoly at the dmv you're playing an even more delimited set and if you are uh, rolling the dice while playing monopoly during your first turn at the dmv you have an even more delimited set you know we can imagine a kind of nested hierarchy of uh, the ways that agency works and, you know, the, a metaphor I was thinking of, and I'm always wary of uh, mechanistic metaphors, right, of machines, but these these are virtual machines, right? Mm-hmm. The, the theory of agency is... Um, uh, you know, if you think about a virtual machine in a computer, right, you know, you launch a virtual machine that's got Windows 98 installed in your Windows 11 machine, right, or mm-hmm. you've got uh, a Linux boot that you boot uh, Windows 95 inside of in order to play Disciples 2 or whatever you want to play, right, mm-hmm. and so that's the theory that's done, and, but and the reason I think that's a helpful way of uh, metaphorizing is that Uh, He says, critically, you're not locked in that smaller version of agency, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're running these two things simultaneously. You can always click out of the window and use your Windows 11 machine, right? And not the Windows 98 virtual machine. Mm -hmm. Um, But And and I do think that is broadly helpful in terms of thinking about how are our actions uh, curtailed by the conditions that they're in, right? We can get here a wholly different way, right? We can get here through affordances. We can get here through discipline. We can get here through um, uh, uh, questions of social obligation. You can have a wholly entirely social version of this that never touches the notion of agency whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I do think it's helpful to like have that, you know, Nguyen's idea set out clearly and cleanly, it's always a kind of bracketing of the bigger version of agency, so you have it. So when you said, Michael, you know, why is this not my full agency? I do think in the last instance, the win is going to say it is your full agency. Mm -hmm. Like you do actually have it, but you have made a choice or a decision to bracket off parts of that full agency to better engage with the game. Here's the, here's a key example. You and I could be playing Monopoly. You've chosen to bracket your agency within Monopoly. You're losing Monopoly. You decide to flip the table, right? Mm -hmm. You've exerted your full agency outside Mm -hmm. of the bounds of the game. uh, In order to do the thing you were, you were running those two things at one time. Now, That's not socially acceptable, but it is uh, clear evidence that two forms of agency are are operative at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, something that I'm deeply, uh, uh, um, you know, I have uh, emotions about while reading this book is that I am um, deeply sad that it that it engages this part of my brain Mm. where I like I talk in ways that I just talked where I was like and see. You can see where. Yes, yes. And I just start doing like analytical philosophy stuff. Uh-huh. Like and like it's just pure debate brain, right? <laughs> like uh, like the worst impulses that that I could ever have where it's like you said xyz Michael, did you know you're foolish and you've misapprehended the thing? Obviously that's not true. But right <laughs> like the tone that it demands you engage in. Mm-hmm. Um I I I you know i've spent a lot of my life trying to get rid of it. maybe people don't think that i have gotten rid of it and I, you know that's up for you to decide but i think in a general sense um yeah. i i don't i don't like engaging in this form of thought um but uh, And yet here we are. Yeah. Well, like here's my continental move, which is, uh, in fact,
1: uh, my misapprehension demonstrated perfectly my actual claim, which is that this language is unhelpful.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the thing too. It's like, all right, here's an alternate mode of getting here. Here's an alternate mode of thinking all of these things, right? We are human beings who are, okay, we'll take even one step further back. Sorry. I'll accept Nguyen's claim that we are, uh, uh, thrown into the world, right? There's a lot of kind of secret Heideggerianism in this book and I don't mm-hmm. think on purpose, just the the claims about the kind of what is a subject, you know, what what is a person in the world? Clearly for Nguyen, we are kind of existentially thrown into the world, uh, you know, un unrooted un- to anything. This is the I'm I'm using some Heideggerian language here, right? But mm-hmm. unattached to anything and then we uh make implicit we, we develop implicit values and we have some explicit values, right? And that's what grounds us in the world is like a subject. You know, we we attach ourselves to stuff. Um, and games uh, demonstrate our whole series of agential ways of engaging with the world, which is like we have our full agency. And then by looking at games, we can recognize how we bracket agency, which gives us a better picture of the whole system, right? Mm-hmm. We, I think you and I both have a different explanation of this. It's the word ideology, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, like in fact, you're not thrown as a radical subject into the world unattached to anything. You are deeply, for from my perspective, from the moment of birth, you are deeply Im- imbricated in hundreds of systems in which you have some address and redress, but in some very little. And it requires uh, uh, effort, to think your to think those systems number one, but also you ha, in order to interact with them and to uh, break away from them requires a really difficult kind of uh, engagement with the world that that is communally based. It's judgment based. You know, I I am a naive Althusserian on some of these issues, right? Um, what all through Sarah calls relative autonomy, I think, certainly exists. The ability to think outside of the world you're in, right? Mm-hmm. The ability to consider the world. You know, ideology is not so encompassing that we can't even see it. That's not true, mm-hmm. right? We can do that. But also, it's it's a system. It's a social system that determines what we think our options are, the ideas we have, the way that we consider the world. Those are all formed and shaped by those things. You know, I, I think about... Um, a book I was teaching last year called about abortion. That's just kind of a uh, conceptual and um, theoretical engagement with like, what is abortion in the United States? How does it work? What are the different social systems around it? Um, Who responds to it? Why all that kind of stuff. And in that book, I'm blanking on the maybe Sanger is the, uh, is the author. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, but there's a, there's a section of that book that is called, or that's about this notion uh, of being socially born before you're born. Mm-hmm. And so that's being given a name, right? Before you're born. That's uh, it's a boy, it's a girl, mm-hmm. right? All these different things that the social mechanisms of the world we live in are already exerting pressure on you and are shaping your life. Before you have consciousness right? Mm -hmm. Before any of those other things. And of course, we have relative autonomy, right? We have the ability to address those systems, to think through them, right? To uh, to determine that, uh, say, for example, the gender you're assigned at birth is insufficient to you, right? It's not the one that you want to live your life as or that you experience in your actual engagement with yourself. Right. Mm hmm. And then that's two different systems running into one another, right? That's two different forms of ideology that are encountering one another um, and have to be uh, addressed, right? They they get they smash into one another. That, that to me, this notion of of agency is always sub. You know what I mean? It, it, if if we're thinking about a hierarchical relationship, agency is beneath ideology, mm-hmm. um, and ideology is inherently social and communal and there is no way an agency can address that and agency agent can agency can speak to it and hopefully agency can can intervene in ideology right can, can to create competing ones that then um you know create hopefully more just worlds that we live in right that's that's the hope mm-hmm. um it's not just hey i'm i'm thrown into the world and therefore i exert agency and whatever happens has, happens right? right um i think whens N- Imaginary of of games is deeply, deeply individualistic. Um, And to me, that's where a big part of friction comes from here is like I layers of agency might be true, but they are within a different system for me. um, That is not just that doesn't just cash out in agency, Mm -hmm. but maybe what I'm talking about is autonomy here. Right. Right.
1: So uh, chapter four, the issue of autonomy uh, is what I said at the beginning of the episode where Nguyen, having established striving play and all of this kind of stuff, is now going to start working through some of the consequences of this conceptualization of games and some of the problems that they pose. So beginning this chapter, uh, Nguyen admits, okay, so I have argued that games are basically uh, like little agential scripts that a designer makes, and then when we play games, we are uh, molding ourselves to... Uh, that agency actually a thing that I should say right here because mm-hmm. it's said much earlier uh, and it's also I think is it the isn't it something like the subtitle of the book uh, that games as art right games as artwork are like uh, they work in agency right that is yeah. that is like one of the the central kind of claims here as well so yeah
0: uh, novels use words mm-hmm. pictures use images you know, paintings use images, not pictures. Yeah, <laughs> pictures <laughs> use pictures, uh, right? You know, these other things and uh, games. While you think they might be doing these other things, right? They mm-hmm. might be deploying. You know, uh, Ian Bogus for whatever reason gets used here. Procedural rhetoric gets used as like the mistaken term here, right? Yeah. Uh, games actually don't deploy arguments for it and win. Games deploy agency. And you might derive an argument from that, but that's actually not the medium that they're involved in. The the medium that they're involved in is the sculpting of agency and time.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. For Nguyen is looking to develop a basically an aesthetic theory that can account for games, uh, but does not take games as being primarily narratives or even rule systems. Uh and so here this is when we run into autonomy, uh, The issue then is that if games are about me fitting my agency into whatever little bubbles or layers that the game designer has made for me, it, actually, what I think, uh, I, I did not write this in my notes, but, like, I think the thing he
0: says is, isn't that kind of creepy? <laughs> uh, like, I you mean, know... I, no- is funny. Yes. Like, we haven't said that <laughs> yet, but, but uh, a good writer, and, and, uh, there's some good zingers in here. Yeah. <laughs> and-
1: <laughs> right, right. So it's kind of like, you know, laying out the argument he's made thus far, and then just being like, is it not obvious that this could go weird? Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um... So uh, what do we do with that? Uh, uh, And also there's actually a bit here where he has to like sort of bamf out uh, and say like, you know, shouldn't we basically like the taking kind of the reflexive move as like, well, if games are about rules and like, you know, forming our agency into uh, shapes that fit those rules, should we not prefer totally freeform play? And this is where he talks about uh, Miguel Sickart and... um, uh like play as as kind of unbound by rules, right? Yeah. Um so uh he says that uh, uh Nguyen says not Sickart uh says that this is kind of mistaken right to take like uh play unbound by rules, again what Calwa would call Paidea, um mm-hmm. uh to take that as kind of the premiere overlooks the fact that uh rules are Are not necessarily bad. Like rules are, in fact, like good because they uh, allow us to do what you were just talking about, uh, Cameron, where uh, they allow us to do something that we have to do practically in our lives, which is like narrow down where am I and what am I allowed to do? Like, what am I going to do that's not going to get me, you know, like tackled to the floor by security or something like that uh, if I'm Mm -hmm. whipping off my clothes in the DMV? Right. Um, So, uh, which
0: we don't recommend. (laughs)
1: In fact, we recommend you go to uh the DMV wearing one of the many fine t-shirts available at rangetouch.com slash store. That's right. Uh
0: or maybe it's shop. I don't remember. I you know, I also d- I never ever remember. Let me look. Rangetouch.com slash stop. God, God damn it. Okay. <laughs> yep, sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. Um <laughs>
1: anyway. Uh So uh, this gets us to uh, the point that uh, Nguyen wants to make is like, yes, okay, games games do this, right? They uh, give us uh, scripts for agency um, and they encourage us to take those on and identify with them uh, crucially, you know, temporarily. Uh, we can, like, take them on and off as we see fit, but then what do we do with that? Well, uh, page 76, just a quote here. Uh, games can thus provide us with something very special. They can expose us to alternate agencies, and a wider range of agential experiences, I argue, can support and enhance our autonomy in a number of ways.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So from here, Nguyen, uh, defines autonomy, like, and works through kind of, like, debates, you know, what do you think autonomy is? Well, uh, there's this idea of, um, I think it's happening here. Yeah, it's coherentist, right? Is autonomy, uh, like, about you being able to, like, exert your singular unidirectional will on the world around you? Or is autonomy about responsiveness, about your ability to, like, be in a situation, evaluate that situation, and then shape your behavior in kind of the way that is, you know, amenable to you or, like, is going to get you the best outcome or whatever, Right. Yeah. Um, and Nguyen falls on the responsiveness side. Like games basically, mm-hmm. uh, for Nguyen, you can detect that probably in the quote that I just read, by providing you this library of potential agencies or potential agential modes, which is I think is a term that's going to show up in a, if not this chapter, then soon. Um uh they allow you to be more responsive by basically giving you a deeper bench of uh ways of being in the world. A, a word that we haven't talked about actually is like practical or pragmatic. Uh Nguyen is very uh emphatic about, and this is a thing again that I appreciate. I actually appreciated about Bodhi in, in the last book as well. Uh that games are just like games often are just like things that you're doing something with, right? It's about, mm-hmm. you know, like that's the whole agential thing. Uh yeah. so when we're being practical with games, it's like, okay, if I have to like throw a ball on a court of this size into a basket of this size, like practically, what are the things that I have to do and the skills that I have to develop? You know, I have to dribble yeah. and so on and so forth.
0: And and what do I derive out of that situation? Right. Um. This is uh Olinda Chang's argument in Plain Nature.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. think
0: about the mesosphere argument that was in that book and, mm-hmm. you know, how do we think games as experimental spaces? I, this is also kind of Patrick Jagoda's claim in experimental games. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, so there are other people who are thinking this in the game studies field explicitly, although not in kind of the most bare bone. I don't mean this in a negative way, but bare bones way, right? Like Nguyen's doing it in a, in a, like here is the skeletal structure of how this actually works. These other people are like doing other stuff with it. But, mm-hmm. um, they, these, these ideas, what I'm saying is all these ideas communicate really clearly with one another. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, we end up then... So, actually, first of all, one thing that I just want to remark upon, because it is notable to me, you mentioned, I think, at the beginning of the episode that I have this, like, sort of longer historicist uh, uh way of approaching issues and problems. Uh, this yeah. idea that uh, games... You had to
0: go read a bunch of forums posts to determine if <laughs> Homestuck was good or bad.
1: Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I also had to read a whole bunch of, like, 15th and 16th century humanists uh, defending their decision to teach, like, various pieces of text that were not the Bible.
0: Yeah, uh, you should you should write a book like this about Homestuck, <laughs> like a derived from yeah. first principles evaluation of the mechanisms of Homestuck.
1: I mean, uh, there there are things that are said in this book that are not uh, inapposite to claims that I would make <laughs> about Homestuck, particularly. Anyway, sorry, yeah. sorry. So yeah. you're
0: going back to the 15th, 16th century, oh, you're reading right, about right, these. Right. Legitimators.
1: Yes, right. Well, so uh, uh, you know, one of the big things I was a trained early modernist, uh, uh, which is what our we sometimes call the Renaissance and like the fuzzy area around it now. Uh, And one of the things that I really focused on and uh, continue to think about a lot uh, is the humanist tradition. Uh, which today has a whole lot of attendant stuff with it, like secular humanism and atheism and all this stuff. But like humanism in its first instance in the 16th uh, or 15th, 16th, 17th centuries um, is this program of education that emerges uh, basically saying, hey, we can teach uh, in, in Europe, right? We can teach classical writers, uh, what they call uh, the Greeks and Romans, right? We don't just have to teach the Bible uh, because having a wide variety of textual references is ultimately morally beneficial to our students. And this is the basic claim of like humanist education from that point forward, like we are still like, yeah. uh, uh, I have been in the English, like the Literary Studies Academy for over a decade now, and this is still the most common defense of uh, uh, literary study imaginable. Mm-hmm. When I talk to undergrads, like, what, do, what is it that you like about literature? It's like, oh, I like the way that it lets me think about uh, the way that another person experiences the
0: world, right? Yeah, The and this is eaten or, I guess, is, is co-developed with the notion of liberal humanism, Yes. Right? That... Not only is the humanist claim taken for granted here, right? The idea that multiple perspectives, uh, gives you insight into our being, right? Mm -hmm. Like as a, as a species, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but in addition to that, that that is the good, right? That's the liberal part of it, right? That the, the voluntarism of it and the ability to discern between many options, the, the capability to exercise judgment and the, um, and and praising the notion that that judgment is good, right? Mm-hmm. That's what makes liberal humanism as a kind of philosophical construct work, right? You, know? you get all these options, and in fact, your ability to uh, legislate among them with your properly educated mind—that is the best good, right? You know, um, this is way down the road, um, morphing in a thousand different ways. That's how you get to uh, the best counter for. Uh, bad speech is good speech yes Mm -hmm. all you need is more all you need is more good speech to to drown out the bad speech right right because the good liberal humanist will be able to legislate and figure out where the good stuff is right and make the right choice
1: now uh Notably, like, this is one of the things I really like about this book, and I like about uh, the way that Nguyen takes this argument, right? Because my entire dissertation, uh, in kind of a, a fundamental sense, was built on taking these early humanist claims about, like, how basically teaching a wide variety of literature um, in the proper context is going to be beneficial to the students, and it's, like, going to, always going to help them, you know, legislate and make the appropriate choices and be uh, ethical agents and so on and so forth. Uh that all of these arguments, particularly as the early humanists were making them, are founded on a, like, neurotic denial of the basic fact that if literature helps you choose to be a good person, it might also help you choose to be a bad person. Whatever we think Uh-oh. good and bad are. But, like, if we're installing choice as the premier thing here, you can choose to be bad.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, you know, in my book, I talk about this, too, right? Of, like um you know we all agree that video games do stuff right what what are the mechanisms through which they do good and bad stuff (laughs) right (laughs) uh
1: oh (laughs) right uh and so uh what i what i really appreciate about uh Nguyen's argument here is that the end of this chapter is like, okay, so here's like the best case scenario is that we're going to play games, we're going to get a wide variety of experiences of agential kind of modes that we can uh, uh, kind of have in the back of our minds and we can apply them to uh, -to day-to-day life in various ways. One of the examples that he gives, this may be in a later chapter, but he talks about like uh, playing the game Spyfall. Oh, yes, this is a, it is this chapter. Yeah, it's in the
0: show. It's actually, it does show up again later, I believe. Okay, I so right.
1: Spyfall is like a game, it's like a bluffing game, uh, basically. Uh, and he talks about, like, playing Spyfall uh, uh, repeatedly or for an extended period actually, like, made him more attentive to the ways that he, like, uh, basically detects other people lying or bullshitting. Yeah. So, uh, an example there. Uh, anyway... Uh, he then, at the end of this chapter, gets to the dark side, which is that if games can be used in kind of this positive way, well, then it stands to reason they could also be used in ways that we would recognize as as negative. Um, mm-hmm. And so what well, if do we, you can what?
0: winnow experience down all of yes. your agency down into things that make you uh, develop kind of pro-social values, mm-hmm. uh, then absolutely you can narrow it down in a way that do the opposite.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where we end up as we're actually in the next chapters on aesthetics and then frames. Uh, but, uh, this is
0: kind of like a, we do kind of loop around Yeah. What, what Michael's hinting at here is that the book, uh, sections, like we, we take a dip into aesthetics and then we kind of return to this issue at the end of the book for a couple chapters. Right. So,
1: uh, yeah, we're, like, signaled there that there is, like, there's a potential dark side to this, and I think that's, like, I think that's good, right? As someone who read so many books from so many centuries where people just act like this is all gravy forever, all we have to do is give people more choice and and we're golden. Uh, but not really attending to, like, how are those choices given to people and what are the context and environments in which those choices are structured, etc., etc., etc. Yeah. But then we move into this chapter on aesthetics.
0: Um, well, I'm going to talk about Dalshool, oh, Tasha Dalc'houl, for yeah. just a second, right? So, uh, you actually have the you actually pulled the quote here. So this is on 93. Uh, this is when, if I'm right, then lack of exposure to a sufficiently broad variety of games or constant exposure to a very limited range of games might interfere with the development of our agency and autonomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this uh, echoes of the "what if phone but too much" claim. Yeah, <laughs> right, like. Uh, did you know you got a Goldilocks your way through life? And if you don't, then everything goes to shit, right? Like mm-hmm. this is perhaps not shocking, right? Like everything in moderate this is just everything in moderation <laughs> rephrased for games, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the but the thing that in, uh, gets there through um, thinking through Natasha Dalshul's Addiction by Design. Um, but I, I think an important thing, and you actually made a note about this uh, as well, right, is that Natasha Dal Shull's claim in that book is not that, uh oh, you might have done too much gaming, and so then for then therefore you have been uh, sucked into the mechanisms of, of the casino operation, right? You know, it's not it, it is not voluntarist. Mm-hmm. The very way that we engage with the world gets hijacked by casino operations, mm-hmm. right? Like th- these, the, they have recognized they have identified through social analysis, analysis, through psychological engagement, through experts in every possible field, the way that human beings uh, are likely to statistically engage with these things, and then they hijack them at that higher level. And this is where I'm thinking, this is why you need a theory of ideology, right? Or this Mm -hmm. is why you need a theory of structure, at least. Um, Agency, our full agency, is structured by other stuff. Mm-hmm. the gaming industry gambling does not engage you at the level of agency, mm-hmm. at least for the people uh, who are preyed upon by the industry, right? right? It engages with them at the structure of their life. And, you know, Dal Shull walks us through all those examples of people who bend their entire being around going and sitting at the, you know, the gas station gambling machine, right? hmm right. And that's not like, oh, poor those people, right? It is a a demonstration of, even though I think in the episode I was like, look, this is almost like pornographic and it's like depiction of these nightmarish uh, conditions. But that's not what it's in the book for, right? It's in the book in order to demonstrate that the way that these companies think agency, right, the way that they think of your ability to look at your options and legislate the best one for yourself, they can undermine that. Mm -hmm. They can undermine your ability to weigh your options in the world. At that level, it's not, you're not in full control of your agency. You don't have full agency, right? Right. Or if you do, it is already a subset of structure provided for you that you can't even reflect on. Mm -hmm. I just don't think you can bootstrap your way out of a gambling addiction. Yeah. Fundamentally. And I think that, I don't know if Nguyen thinks that or not. I, I, from the book, I can't tell, although maybe we get into it later, but I do think the theory as presented does does provide for that, Mm -hmm. that you just should simply do your agency differently. And I don't think I I don't get the sense Nguyen thinks that, but I think that's the claim accidentally being made here. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, there's something uh, happening in like it's it's in two paragraphs, right, that we get uh, the Mm -hmm. overview of Dao Shul and her argument. And then that longer claim or yeah, the longer quote from Nguyen that you read, it's one paragraph and then the other. Um, mm-hmm. there's something fuzzy happening here with the notion of addiction that I think complicates, uh, what Nguyen is talking about and like, isn't getting into that. Uh, yeah. but it seems like he is taking addiction as like a special case, uh, that, yeah. uh, may or may not be unique to, uh, gambling or something like, cause again, he's not getting into it, but there's something about addiction that kind of like undoes, uh, some yeah. of the presuppositions of the argument here. Um, and, and
0: for sure it's not like addiction is not a special case of being right. Mm-hmm. It it is just uh, mechanisms that grab on to particular parts of the human, yeah. right? It it is this it is in- by design, thing. <laughs> right? 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 <laughs> well, it's all—it's almost like you can design your way right there. Yeah. Somebody should write a book about it. Um, but uh, but but yeah, and you know this. Um, I guess there's an implicit theory of ideology here because, uh. The discussion of rules are it is it comes from someone tells you what to do, right? On ninety six, he says explicitly, "I wrote this down." It is easier to find your way into novel ways of, into a novel way of being when someone tells you exactly what to do, right? And so there there's something going on here. We're right at the edge of like a meta theory of agency or a higher level other than individual full agency, but I I don't think that it is fully. I don't know. It, I have, I guess I have enough question marks about it that I don't think it's completely addressed. But I keep thinking about that. Anyway, next hmm. chapter, uh, yeah. The Aesthetics of Agency.
1: Yep. Uh, <clears throat> uh, basically, uh, this th- there's nothing in this chapter that is surprising, because uh, it's all kind yep. of implicit in stuff that he has said before, and now he's just kind of, like, unspooling it for us, that the aesthetics of games are about the experience of playing them and, like, moving toward whatever goal, right? Whatever motivation is there. Uh, it is the aesthetic qualities of doing. So, uh, there's this weird kind of, like, uh, meta thing that happens where, for, for Nguyen, uh, the aesthetic experience of a game is this, uh, warping around where you become aesthetically aware or at least aesthetically appreciative in some way of the very act of doing something. hmm Right? Um... And, I mean, sure, right, and this is actually the chapter where he addresses uh, one of the biggest critiques that I had about Suits, uh, actually talking through, is this, yeah, this is on page 110, striving players uh, aren't doing it in order to have done something difficult, they are doing something difficult for the experience of harmony between their utmost capacities and the practical world, and he's talking about this specifically in the context of rock climbing. One of the big critiques that I made about Suits is that, uh, I think his definition fairly solid, but then the way that he, like, exposits that definition and thinks through, like, counter-arguments to it and so on and so forth, at no point in that book does anyone ever play a game because they like the way that it feels? Mm-hmm. Right. Like in, it, for someone who talks so much about sports, uh, there's never anything about just like, man, I really love running around the track or I love the endorphin hit or whatever. Um, and so Nguyen is actually very open to that. like think like that that, in fact, can be a goal. Right. The experience of rock climbing and having like moved and exerted your body in certain ways. Uh, so like, you know, awesome. Great. I'm glad to see like that sort of gap in suits filled.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, this is a really interesting, like, again, this is not a place that I would go to make this claim, Um, you know, for me, because for Nguyen, the aesthetics of agency, right, have to do with the kind of aesthetic qualities of the exercise of agency itself, right? So Mm -hmm. it's not that the graphics look good, right? Mm -hmm. It's that there is a kind of quality uh, or value to actually, you know, reaching up and grabbing the next, uh, you know, outcrop uh during your rock climbing perfectly right there that or like making the perfect shot or uh making the perfect move in the board game you know that you know landing on park place mm-hmm. that there is a uh a beauty to it you know for for lack of a better word right um and he i really like the the term um that gets crystallized here the harmony of solution mm-hmm So he writes, you experience not only the fit between the obstacle and the solution, but the fit between the obstacle and yourself is the originator of the solution. So if you ever played a puzzle game, figuring out the puzzle, right, that like, ooh moment of elation of I did it, you know, that kind of thing. And he's trying to give some language for what that is and how it feels like. Um, And, yeah, I think I think it's broadly helpful I, you know, again, I would come at this from a radically different angle and I have approached this, you know, kind of as as a philosophy problem before I've got a piece on uh, the diagram, the Deleuzian diagram as a way of understanding genre um, and working through cyan night as as a way of thinking through these issues, you know, so I'm coming from a very different philosophical tradition in order to get there. Um, And I would say that, like, you know, for me, there's nothing inherent there. You experience no beauty of action. Like, the aesthetics of agency don't exist without an exterior framework. Mm -hmm. Um, There are plenty of things that we do. Everything that we do every day within the appropriate framework would be beautiful. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, And he talks about this, too, right? That, That... in uh cuz he talks about doing zen reading and and thinking through how every action that you do during the day could have meaning within it could could and to do it appropriately and correctly has its own kind of value to it so he's addressing this in some way right but for me that's never emerging from in, inside of you right that's always mm-hmm. social as well that and you are an inheritor of like thousands of years of implicit valorization and devalorization that get to the moment where you think that you've made the perfect headshot in halo three. Mm-hmm. right? And that that's good to do as opposed to, um, you know, uh, not mattering whatsoever. So for me, I, I, you know, I think that there's like, there are some additional parts of this that might be really interesting to, to deal with, but I think this is really good. This is also the chapter though, where I realized that within philosophy, like the word insane and the concept of schizophrenia and stupidity and all of these different, like, Gradations of of um, uh, you know hierarchizing human thought or mm-hmm. like load bearing to the discipline of philosophy. Yeah, like this whole book, like the the uh, the excluded term is always insanity, schizophrenia. You already talked earlier about stupid games, right? Mm-hmm. Um, notably, stupid games look a lot like folk games. Yep, um, and I'm not quite sure that you know how. I don't know where the argument goes where you say that some of the most prominent socially engaged with games in the world are inherently stupid because they don't engage with, you know, the, this kind of valorized form of play that we're doing. Um, and, you know, I think about all the books we've read that have engaged with folk games. And like, I I don't know what the heuristic of stupid games gets you mm-hmm. Um because there obviously is a hierarchization there. Right? right. That's not a valueless term. But in any case, I, I think I started this chapter going like, well, I don't know about this, and into, ended it by going, oh, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. I, that totally makes sense. And I think to do something with this chapter and this I- explicit no, you know, idea of the aesthetics of agency, I would personally have to add a lot of stuff to it to make it kind of fit in with my viewpoint of the world. But uh, but I think it's worth thinking about. I think it's a, a useful... It, for me, if you if you don't engage with a big chunk of this book, I think this would still be a helpful thing to, to extract from it if you wanted to. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the uh, There's a n- minor note uh, bit in here where he talks about Quap and Octodad as being, quote, the gaming equivalent of horror movies which I think is yeah. very funny. Uh, right. There he does not mean, like, uh, like obviously he does not mean that those are, like, horror games in terms of their genre. He's actually building off of, I think, the argument that Noel Carroll makes in his philosophy of horror book, because um, yes. Carroll is actually one of the series editors for uh, uh, this series. Um, anyway, the, the argument there being that, like, whereas uh, pinging off of what Cameron was saying about, like, harmony and all that, uh, if if kind of the ideal experience of a game is something about, like, the harmony of pressing the button in the on-screen action, or uh, one of the examples that he also gives here is swerving through traffic to uh, avoid a drunk driver.
0: Yeah, what a what a, what a very explicit... <laughs> but yeah, that's a harmony of action. It's not being, uh, you know, pancaked by a dump truck.
1: Yeah, so... Okay. Uh, to use the term of art. Yeah, it feels like uh it f- feels like that's a uh working from experience there maybe. Um, yeah, maybe. Uh but anyway, right? If if har- if games uh aesthetically are are generally uh uh esteemed for harmony, uh then quap and octodad as being games where harmony is not the value right the, the whole thing about yeah. those games is that pressing the button and the on-screen action is extremely frustrating uh then they are the gaming equivalent of horror movies because they are about uh giving us aesthetic packages for uh like, feelings that we would generally not consider, like, you know, pleasant aesthetic experiences, like, you know, seeing people get uh, uh, murdered or eaten by sharks or whatever, right? But, like, that's a bad thing if we see it in real life, but we see it in a movie and we're like, yeah, go shark.
0: Yeah, go shark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, oh I, here, this is a note, and this is always, like, a weird note to have to make about a book, but Gonzalo Frasco's name is misspelled everywhere in this book. Huh? Yeah, it's uh, A-L-O, not O-L-O. In case oh. anyone's, like, citing this book going forward and you're curious about that, that uh, is consistently misspelled. Hmm.
1: Uh, then, the, So after Aesthetics, uh, the next chapter is called Framed Agency, uh, and this is basically... Uh, the, the idea here, the one that gets really floated and that is important, is uh, Nguyen puts forth this idea of the prescriptive frame, uh, which is just... Uh, as we have maybe said it in other contexts, it's a, it's a way of getting at the idea that objects teach you how to read them. Mm -hmm. Right that uh, a so in in a painting right there is a frame right there's an edge to the canvas and then sometimes often a literal frame that tells you this is where the painting ends when you want to appreciate the painting you will look within this area you don't necessarily have to look at the wall behind it or turn around and see what's behind you and and so on and so forth right so it delimits uh, what it is that you're actually apprehending and experiencing as the aesthetic object Uh, so what do we do with games then how does that work uh, and Nguyen gets into all all this stuff that uh, you know, it's not as simple as like looking at the rule system and seeing how elegant that is. Uh, but it's also uh, you would be doing short shrift if you just like watched a game being played and tried to figure out how it felt from there. That there's got to be some kind of interplay there. That uh, uh you know, uh, y- you need to uh look at what the rules say and then think about or experience what is the output of those rules and kind of like how does that experience uh, put you in relationship to the rule set of the game or what have you, right? Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, if uh, this version of agency is about kind of designing a little box and then exploring the box, frame, the notion of the frame is a way of of talking about the way the box is constructed. Right. Um, and I think this is perfectly fine. Um, I think this is acceptable. I do think some of the examples are a little bit weird. Um, like that, in a novel, the no- the line breaks don't matter. Uh-huh. You know, uh, but in poetry, they do. Well, uh, you know, sometimes the line breaks matter in a novel, right? Like right. Weirdly enough, that that's an example of doing the thing he tells us not to do in games, which is like you can't take one piece of it and then extract out of it like the truth of the thing. You have to like have this wide ranged thing of it, and so there's an infinite depth to this. I think you can poke at this, this chapter could be a whole book, uh, Mm -hmm. I think um, in determining, well, what are these things? And in fact, I want to write this book. Uh, You know, I, you you and I have been talking for a couple of years now, you know, I've been making these notes and writing pieces of, of a piece of a book. Maybe I I don't know what it is, but something that's kind of about this, about how, how do games um, impel certain modes of engagement? Right. Mm-hmm. Not action necessarily, not necessarily play, but engagement. And uh, from a kind of structural perspective, and uh, so I'm really interested in this, and I think it, it uh, largely makes sense. Although this is the place that I was referring to earlier about Oli Leno, right? So Oli Leno wrote this piece that was like, "Hey, guess what? You can play a game even if you don't engage with it correctly. Mm-hmm. So if you just like get on Street Fighter Six online and just." <laughs> crouch all the time you know what i mean just like stand up and crouch and spam crouch and do nothing and just get beaten up all day long you played the game mm-hmm. you know like you didn't play the game the way other people did and if i get on uh you know get on the old message board right and yeah. i say i just i'm playing street fighter six and no one else will respect me <laughs> no one else will allow me to play the game i want they keep beating me up and ending the match i want to crouch until the timer runs yeah. out.
1: My friends and it, it, I used you, to do this on Halo 2 multiplayer.
0: Of course. Right? We would all find did. a
1: place in the map to hide and we would all crouch <laughs> and stack on each other's heads and we would wait for the other players to find us just to see how they reacted and that was what <laughs> right, we did. Of
0: course. Because this is like the you know the play of the thing, right? right? That doing it's goofball behavior, right? Like doing things that are against the spirit of the game is in, in fact quite fun sometimes. You mm-hmm. know, that can be its own value and that can be its <laughs> own like expression of agency. Um, and, but he says, look, uh, the, he, uh, essentially not essentially Nguyen says that's not playing the game, mm-hmm. um, that it, it can't be going against the kind of, uh, mechanisms that the game gives you to interact with it. it. And yet we're still working. I really don't understand how this argument resolves because we're playing within the affordances that the game gives us. We're having an experience within the game. We are within the limited set of agency. We're just not doing the thing we're supposed to do. Um, And I think that in the minimal version of that, this makes sense, right? So if like, if you get on Street Fighter 6 and you don't do anything that Street Fighter asks you to do, you're probably not playing the game. Okay, fine, whatever, Mm -hmm. right? But I do wonder about the maximal version, right? Like, did I not play an Assassin's Creed game if I did not 101% the game? You know, if I didn't collect mm-hmm. every Petruchio mm-hmm. feather, did I not play Assassin's Creed? Like what, what is the minimum viable product for, for having played the thing? Um, and he explicitly uses the example of speedrunners that speedrunners are playing a different game than uh, a regular Super Mario brother player is. And like on one level, I, I guess I agree, right? They yeah. have a different set of goals. They have a different set of ideas or whatever, but I think they're I think they're playing the game, mm-hmm. right? Like in any basic way. You said if I went and said, "Hey, I'm playing Super Mario Brothers, I'll be there in a minute." And then you saw me and I was speedrunning Super Mario Brothers. You wouldn't go, "You're not playing the game?" <laughs> you would go, "Oh, you're speedrunning the game, right?" And, right. and I, I just don't I don't think that that's a different set of agency. Mm-hmm. Um that to me reads like I I don't know what that is actually. I that that maybe is why Like I don't know what it is in the terms of this book. Mm -hmm. I think this is why this game or this book probably needed a theory of affordances for me Mm -hmm. in order for me to understand some of the claims being made outside of the kind of first principle argumentation, because if this doesn't engage with what is possible to do or no, sorry, let me take a step back. I don't understand where values come from um, within the possibility space of the game. If they are not arbitrary inherently, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Playing Donkey Kong Country and playing it to 100% completion versus doodling around in Donkey Kong Country are both playing the game for me, and I don't understand why one is uh, more sufficient than the other uh, outside of an arbitrary distinction. Mm -hmm. It certainly doesn't have to do with the frame, right? Right. Because the frame is the possibility space of the game for me. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm misunderstanding. Maybe I don't get it. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm just on a different level. But for the most part, I find the argumentation compelling. It's just I have some real, like, cash-out issues here, right? Like, what what then do we do with the thing? Right. With the notion of the frame? Oh. Uh, uh,
1: I think handily, this maybe leads us into the next chapter, which is chapter seven, the distance in the game. Uh yeah. And it gives us a term for talking about exactly, I think, mm-hmm. uh, at least the region uh, uh, that you're trying to discuss here. Uh, this term is a gentle distance, um, yeah. which is the gap between, uh, like, you know, when you are making a game, uh, you have this weird sort of thing that goes on in your head where you're like, what do I want my player to do and how do I get them to do it? Right, what are the tools that I can give them to uh, result in this type of experience? That can be one way of thinking through this, but can also be something like, how do I guide them through a level? How do I make sure they don't get confused? Uh, how do I make them uh, want to do something that I want them to do rather than something uh, that they may want to do or you know get distracted or whatever? That is the agential distance, right? The gap between uh, sort of the design of the game and then, uh, the actual player's, uh, agential capacity, uh, which mm-hmm. is some of what you're getting at, I think, right? That there is, uh, the, yeah. th- this, uh, gap, uh, may in fact be very, very broad because it, it, we can make the argument that in an Assassin's Creed game, everything there has in fact been designed to be, to be 100% completed and all the feathers found and so on, yep. uh, but crucially, uh, I don't think people working on those games are expecting everyone to 100% those games, Mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, what do we do with these kinds of, like, weird uh, in-between cases? Mm
0: -hmm. The agential gap.
1: (laughs) Uh, And let's see. There's actually the the back half of this chapter talks about participatory art.
0: Yeah, this is a place where I found the disciplinary focus really difficult. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, because there are three pages about participatory art and a couple examples, and there is one citation to someone else talking about participatory art, which is like a, its own complete discipline of focus for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, I, it would be really great to know what someone other, I think Claire Bishop gets cited here. Um, it'd be really great to know what literally anyone else thought about this and like how you're navigating this from anywhere other than like the first philosophical principle of your assertions about participatory art and reading them out of the examples you have. Um, You know, I'm not a person that's like, you got to cite everyone in the thing because that's just impossible. And you end up with uh, something that looks like a list of citations rather than a claim, right? Like Mm -hmm. in in the order of who cites the most versus the least I am, I'm closer to the least than the most. Um, But uh, even here, I was like, I just I it it is hard to evaluate claims made about participatory art without engaging heavily to me with uh, practitioners, their intent, their ideas about them participatory art is not singular, right? It's not a monolith. Um, Mm -hmm. There are radically different goals within it, some of which are there to critique the participant, some of which are there to critique uh, the art institute itself, some to defend those values, right? That there there is no mechanistic heart to participatory art for me. Um, And something I know a little bit about, right? You know, having, by virtue of the kind of graduate program that I went through and the interests I have in the world and very very few times in this book did I feel like th- this book is not giving me enough information to make any kind of agreement or disagreement with what's happening here. Um, and that's happening in some of the places where game studies should clearly be in conversation. And it is not because of disciplinary concerns. But a place I really felt it clearly was in this participatory art thing. And again, as we've said a million times, it's the discipline. It's the way philosophy does the work. But the way that philosophy does the work here is is not... Enough for me personally as a reader. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And then it uh, sort of like doglegs out of participatory art into architecture and urban design as uh, yeah. uh, the uh, like this. Ultimately, games are inheritors of both of these traditions, but uh, Nguyen kind of like lands on urban design and the ways that uh, people have had to think through how do you design a city center or a walkable space or even a drivable space in order to encourage people to move through it in certain ways? Um, yep. So uh then next chapter games as social transformation. Yeah. All games right.
0: Games do stuff to you. Yep.
2: That that's um, it.
0: <laughs> that, that's it. There there's a really interesting criticism of voluntarism that happens here of because he kind of takes aim at the magic circle. Right. Um and says some people say the magic circle exists. Some people say that it's kind of exploded. Other people after that have uh, d- defended the magic circle on explicitly voluntarist claims, meaning that, like, you know, Michael, you and I can decide that we are elves in a fantasy world, and that is a, a kind of imposition of a magic circle where we can uh, navigate those issues, uh-huh. right? you know, and yeah. I think those citations are all coming out of that particularly are coming out of like the Nordic LARP tradition and the theorization mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. By um, the way,
1: keep an eye, keep an ear out for our new podcast elf lore, where
0: we pretend <laughs> to be elves. We're, and we just tell you about like elf stuff. Yeah. <laughs> people would listen. Yeah. People So like 10 people just heard that and went, Oh my God. I hope they make elf lore. <laughs> um, but, uh, Anyway, but, and then so then he says he gives us like some thought experiments for like how all these ideas about the magic circle might be insufficient and kind of ends up just defending the notion of the magic circle as a conceptual space for running uh agential experiments. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's nothing really shocking there about the whole thing. The example of like the bully at work who you can lure into playing basketball with you Uh uh-huh i i i mean i can't reconstruct you for you in this very moment without reading it again what the claim is made like what the claim is being made there but i did not find that compelling
1: (laughs) no i mean i understand right the basic argument which is that uh uh there's a possibility that let's say there's like friction between two people uh, you can toss them into a game, and the structure of the game can offload some of that friction in ways that may be useful, uh, but also, right. I don't know, may, may not be useful, right? Because I can think of a right. situation in which the, the bully at work is actually playing basketball very hostily in a way that makes it not fun and just makes it a, an extension of the bullying.
0: Well, but but yeah, but he's actually like pushing one argument beyond that, because right. he, he gives you that, and he says... This is proof why voluntarism, the idea to kind of use individual choice to enter into the thing. This is why it doesn't really matter yeah. because you are are magic circling the basketball game with the bully and the bully doesn't has not voluntarily decided to do that. And they think they're bullying you. But in reality, you are, you are cordoning them within the, within the magic circle of the game. And so therefore lessening the thing. But, but you're exactly Right. It sucks to get bullied in basketball. It sucks to get bullied at work and in basketball equally. Right. And being like, I'm beating you in basketball game. That wouldn't make me feel better, personally. <laughs> well, and maybe like... it does. Maybe, maybe it does for other people, but it doesn't for me.
1: I think of that meme of like the guy standing in the corner at the party, but everyone else at the party is like bullying <laughs> yes. him at basketball, and he's thinking to them to himself, they don't know that I've put them in the magic circle.
0: But they don't know that I've put them <laughs> in the magic circle. Yeah, but, you know, so it's another place where, like, the thought experimentation mechanism uh, falls apart for me. But I like the idea of it here. I, I am a uh, magic circle hater. I think it's fake and false uh-huh. and has uh, no heuristic value for me whatsoever. But that doesn't mean you can't make... Uh, artful claims about it and good claims about it and this is a place where game studies actually shows up in the book so that's pretty fun mm-hmm. um but yeah i you know i'm, I'm less sold on this than when might might want me to be
1: uh so what do you make of this part uh at the end of this chapter where he makes up an art foundry review but presents it as a real review of like a french like participatory artist's game and then like a paragraph later is like by the way i made up that guy and that review and i just described the game of bridge
0: uh, What do I make of it? Yeah, like, why did this happen? <laughs> it's a thought experiment, because it's a thought experiment in the, like, rhetorical framing of the thing, even yeah. though he would not use the word rhetoric, I don't think, right? But, like, d- d- did you know that the mode of description and the kind of um, verifying agent of the thing actually matters as well? I, I and I into that I say, yeah, I did yeah, know I that. <laughs> I didn't know that. I think that I think that discourse and like hegemony matter. And yeah. I think for me they are the first principle <laughs> yeah. more than like any human action on the planet. But uh but it's a fun thing to do, yeah. I guess.
1: I mean, it was like this is like a thing I would do, but yeah. I, it hey, really you ever made up a guy? Guard.
0: <laughs> you ever made up a guy? You ever made up a French guy?
1: <laughs> I should. I should make up more Frenchmen. Yeah. Uh Uh, But yeah, so uh, uh, one of the kind of the concluding ideas here is that just as games might give us multiple agencies, they might also supply us with like multiple socialities, right? Uh, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Intersubjective positions where like different types of agency matter. then this brings us into, oh, wait, wait, is that right? Did I do that? Yes, yes, we did. Okay. Uh, So then that brings us into the next chapter, uh, chapter nine, gamification and value uh, capture.
0: Uh, oh, you know what? Sorry, I yeah. I hate to do this. It it was you know we were talking about oh like liberal humanism how it functions all that kind of stuff and how that's kind of the backbone of some of these claims, right? Uh-huh. Uh, the uh, the face I made when John Stuart Mill showed up in this book, uh-huh. <laughs> On it's on page one eighty seven. It's like John Stuart Mill back to back with no spam. I was like, fine. It's like uh you know the when um you ever read Hush, uh, the Batman comic book? No, I didn't. Well, they eventually reveal the identity of Hush. Which I think I know,
1: but I can't
0: conjure. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. But, you know, he's just, he's kind of a mystery the whole time. You know, who is Hush? He's this Batman. Right. That was the deal. That was the deal. Right. Who is it? He could be any of these other people, right? Mm -hmm. Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? And, but it's pretty clear. If you're reading the book, I don't think it's actually a mystery. And uh, you get to the end and Hush pulls off his mask. You go, oh my God, that guy's Hush that's how I feel about John Stuart mill showing up here. It's like, like the, the one of the cores of the book. It's like, it was John Stuart mill the whole time. You know, you rip off the Scooby-Doo mask, yeah. John Stuart mill and Martha Neussbaum are standing there. And it's like, ah, oh, it was them the whole time. Um, but anyway, it was just very funny to me. Um, yeah. that, that yet more kind of, um, a philosophical background of the of the, the, what's happening in the book I'm doing I'm doing the thing we say that we like to do with our other stuff I'm doing it to the very book we're reading right like <laughs> what 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 are the mechanisms the disavowed things the hidden things that are structurally necessary like to make the the bus go right mm-hmm. you know what's the what's the engine under the hood and you know liberal humanism is like cranking all around down there yeah but I'm sorry to take us back we're talking about gamification and value capture the ninth chapter of the book
1: yeah so this is uh where he starts getting into more specifically the the dark side of uh the the argument about the ethical like a- attendances of games or whatever uh you know if games can uh do things to us and if those things that they do to us can be good right if, if games can socially transform us in ways that are helpful or salutary or whatever. Uh, then it stands to reason that they might actually be used to change us or our habits or our behaviors in bad ways. Uh, And for uh, Nguyen, this is mainly about the ways that, uh, uh, touching on something I described earlier, the ways that games can prevent very clean and simple pictures of, like, what is a goal? How do you achieve it? uh, What do you prioritize? What should your overriding value be? right? B. Uh, And this, so the, the, the kind of like mechanism that Nguyen sets up here is that there is a potential for games because they present such a seductively simplistic way of looking at the world because it's so comfortable, right? Uh, and so you can see here, like maybe why we raised all of these questions about maybe some of the, um, backing earlier, right? If you believe that the world is kind of hostile and confusing, and if you believe one of the primary values of games as a form is that they allow you to uh, extricate yourself from that confusion and touch uh, something that is uh, more crystalline, more delineated, uh, less stressful, does not require you to exert as much like cognitive effort or physical effort uh toward whatever your goals are. If you believe that, if you believe that, if you believe that, then the possibility arises that games that function like this could uh lead you further down, you know, the the path to the everlasting bonfire. Uh you can become so caught up in the the beautiful simplicity of the game that you actually forget uh what is uh uh the the sort of prior uh uh the, the the way that you felt about the world what is the reality of the world prior to your sort of subsumption within the gaming system by the way flagging it also this is a further consequence of immersion logic right uh if you can immerse yourself then it's possible to drown yourself um and the name that Nguyen gives to this is value capture meaning mm-hmm. that you have values the game has values you fit your you, you you take on the values of the game for the purpose of playing it but then what if the game through a little sleight of hand or for just being so damn good uh, replaces your values with its own um, yeah
0: what if what if I think this chapter is fine yeah. I think it's good uh,
1: I think it's a, a, a little funny to call the process value capture.
0: Yeah, because values here are entirely like the philosophical notion of the value.
1: Right, right. It's like a pun <laughs> because like people right. talk about value capture, but that's like, you know, how do you monetize more of your audience or whatever?
0: Right. <laughs> I would simply not.
1: Yeah. Oh, and uh, because it's in the title of the chapter, we should say gamification is this for Nguyen, right? Like yeah. gamification is basically just a process of like building uh, a better mousetrap that just leads you to subsequent even better mousetraps on and on and on uh, brought to you by the good people at the mousetrap factory.
0: Yeah. True. Yeah. Fact. <laughs> um. Yeah, I. It was interesting to see this. To see this at the end, because overwhelmingly, I think that this is like the actual way that games work. Mm-hmm. Like I think this chapter overwhelms the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. Because I see more of this in the world than I see of any of the other positive prosocial things. Yep, that happen, and it, that probably has to do with the fact that I've been on the fire hose end of gaming culture for a decade right mm-hmm. um and to the extent where I've largely removed myself from that right like I uh it, but the the ways that games and well let me let me actually take a step back from this is this games like does this emerge from games or does uh, this um, uh, emerge from a large social context around games and particularly an economic incentive to to form this around games
1: yeah I mean, that's, uh, 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 I would say that what is happening here is the part that you just said, but without the part where it's a question, right? Like, I think games can do this, but I think that is because games in this context are plugging to a larger machine that is providing incentives for uh, uh, this kind of thinking, this kind of uh, uh, drawing of battle lines, essentially.
0: Right. Um, Yeah, I, I think there's other stuff going on that we can't just, like uh, address through form and structure of game itself. hmm. Anyway, it's like, we're going to read a whole book about that. I think. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. At some point I've heard, I've heard.
1: <laughs> anyway, so the
0: whisper goes, uh, we, we get a final chapter called the value of striving. That's just, uh, it's a good old fashioned conclusion. Mm-hmm. You got anything to say about
1: it? Uh, Summary, Uh, games are good because they can help us develop our agential fluidity, and uh, in their best instances, they are also going to help us develop the capacity to manage that agential fluidity, rather than narrow it down into, uh, uh, you know, less uh, nuanced and
0: more comfortable
1: uh, uh, ways of thinking. So,
0: Yeah. The enemy of a good game is a closed mind, Michael. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, really, I, the 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 book fundamentally is a uh, really uh, ironclad defense of a liberal model of of engaging with games, mm-hmm. and not liberal like liberal versus you know Democrat Republican, right? Liberal yeah. in in like the notion of philosophical liberalism, right? For the listener at home, right? The idea of of uh, choice, legislating among options, a kind of core. Uh, subjectivity that valorizes those things um, and looks to option. It's fun. Yep, I like the book. I, I, there, like I said at the beginning, I, I have a lot of tidbit criticisms of it, and it is the disciplinary mode that it is engaged in that I bristle at the most, mm-hmm. um, uh, just because that's how philosophy works, and. I can understand lots of people bouncing off of it and lots of people engaging with it. Obviously, this book is very popular. It's, you know, uh, probably the most popular book that we have read on the show in a minute, especially in terms of new books. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, It went wide. Also, it goes wide because it communicates very clearly in um, binaries. Right. Like Mm -hmm. there are things that are good and how they work and then and things are argued for. And then the wind very patiently walks you through all the things that are wrong in the world. Um, and uh, I mean, it's, it's fascinating that the mode of argumentation of philosophy and of the book is in some ways antithetical to the way that good games might work. (laughs) I mean, I think (laughs) that is funny. Although I guess maybe the thing is like, uh, Nguyen and any given philosopher, they give you, they give you the notion, right? And Mm -hmm. then they give you all the options in the notion and they tell you why this option is the best. So maybe not, maybe this is like, the 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 demonstrator of correct argumentation and so then therefore you should take that as a demonstration of the right way to play mm-hmm. um which is taking all your possible agential your fluid agential options and uh choosing the right one for for you that gives you striving play in a, in an aesthetically pleasing kind of way mm-hmm. fun yep
1: so uh there you have it that's it yeah how do we how do we close this out it's been so long we since we've about, ended an episode.
0: Which we uh I know. It's been over two hours since we've ended an episode. Mm-hmm. The uh the way that we're gonna close this out is by saying this is part of the summer of agency. Agency. If you wanna support this whole project, you can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch in order to um Support what we do here at Game Study Study Buddies to support all the time it takes to read a book and think about it and talk about it and write notes and then engage with it. If you give us $3 a month, you can get access to our notes if you want to hear even more and see even more than what we talked about. Um, But uh, in a general sense, I would encourage you to think about supporting at higher levels because then you can get access to bonus episodes of our other shows. And I promise if you like this show, you'll like... Just King Things, our show about Stephen King books in publication order, or Shelved by Genre, which is our show about genre literature, where we do some of the similar kind of stuff that we do in Game Study Study Buddies, in terms of thinking big and broad, but about genre literature, um, and uh, other stuff as well. we got a new episode of Too Much Future coming soon, which will end that show. Uh, Mages and Murder Dads, the show about the Baldur's Gate franchise that Danny and I do, will be starting up soon, uh, not soon, in the next like six months with Baldur's Gate 3, so that'll be fun. You should check out all the stuff that we do. You can go to rangedtouch.com in order to uh, figure that out. Like I said, this is part of the Summer of Agency. This is our second book there. Our next book in this is going to be Adrian Hans Something, Something, Something.
1: It's uh, I can't I, remember if it's You've Got Played or You've Been Played.
0: Uh, You've Got Played. You've Been Played is what it is. Yeah, just a, I have it in this office, but I can't see it. So you've been played, which is a little bit more of a um, not more of it is, is a popular press book, right? Not a directly academic book, uh, a popular press book that is uh, working through basically the last chapter, chapter nine of this book, right? So what are all the ways that uh, games and the way of thinking, games and ways of thinking through, are a gentle capacity to engage with games how has that been hijacked by an industry that monetizes and profits profits off of it so if you want to hear the most like negative version of what we just talked about for two hours and ho- hopefully providing some really helpful pressure on some of the claims made here i mean that's the purpose of doing the summer of agency right is that uh we talked about the Bettina boney book which makes a very clear came uh, you know a very clear case i think that you can't look at agency as a purely individual to the system kind of logic, right? That, that book walked us through all the ways that agency is socially mediated and socially determined. I think it would be very hard, not very hard, in choosing between the way that Bodhi thinks agency and the way that Wind thinks agency, I'm going to go with Bodhi every time. That's my proclivity. That's my I, way of thinking through the way that these systems work. I think the systemic approach rather than the, the individual approach is always going to be more helpful for me to understand the world. And more importantly for me, helping students understand the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, the, the social is a higher determinant than individual action and choice. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, in the last instance, every day. Adrian Han I think is going to help us uh, uh r- make these things run into one another um and I think it's going to be really helpful and if you're thinking about oh should I read the book yeah probably I think it'd be cool to read I think a lot of people are really enjoying it and I think it's been really popular in the same way that that the win book has been really popular too so uh I think that'll be good and then we will end all that up with a uh the Ryan book going all the way back to think about uh, narrative uh, in virtual worlds way back in the day to think about some of the earlier versions of how do we interact with the text that we engage with. So it's going to be really fun. Michael, where, where can people find you on the internet?
1: Uh, oh my God. Where can you find me on the internet? I, I've abandoned uh, the former bird website more or less, but I guess if you want to check me out there, twitter.com slash Warren is dead. Uh, and I'm doing most of my fun posting on cohost.org slash Lutz these days. I'm also on Blue Sky as Zduol, which is just my last name spelled backwards, Z-T-U-L.
0: Yeah, you can just search my actual full uh, name on any given website at this point and find me. So uh, I was never uh, going to
1: beat the Michael Lutz, who's a famed uh, urology doctor, so.
0: I don't know. I think you're giving yourself short shrift. I think you could have done it. <laughs> if I had only dedicated my mind to it. I think you could have beaten the P-Doctor if you tried. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll be back in, next month with uh, the an episode on Adrian Hahn's book. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Michael, what's the catchphrase?
1: Remember, everyone, the social is predicated on its exclusions.